Well, how we doing, guys? Um, welcome back to the What's Happening podcast. Today, I have Sam Morgan on, um, also known as Camino Royale. He is a, I suppose, described singer, songwriter, and composer. Um, so, basically, as you probably guessed, we're going to talk about his music, his album that it's just came, came out, and then we're going to branch into anything else, you know, that we, like most episodes, get on to. Um, so, the first thing I would ask you, Sam, is, first and foremost, you had an album come out last week yeah, yeah yeah it was on friday um sublime and ridiculous Aye, that's um on. so first ever ep i suppose or album whatever yeah. you want to call it put out where did the inspiration kind of come from that you know from the very beginning so obviously this is the culmination of a long long time of work so you've been doing music god knows how long yeah as long as i can remember and i've known you probably about five or six years uh, yeah this is the first like album you've released what made you decide you know finally to be like right i'm going to set up because obviously you set up camino royale over lockdown Um, what made you go you know what i'm going to set up camino royale and then what gave you the inspiration basically to then make the album how it is and release it um there was no real plan initially to have it be an album or whatever basically what happened is i was in a band um saint sapphire and we were doing all various things and like you know like most things at the time it just got ground to a halt by the lockdown suddenly nobody could do anything and then a couple of the other fellas were, you know it was a bad time for everybody so we just thought i just just put that on hold for a bit but um prior to that there was a sentence off our album that i managed to produce myself because um we had gone to a few other studios to record things but it was around summer 2019 we had all these songs we wanted to record for this album we were unsure whether we could sort of secure funding from whatever from wherever to go to like proper studios or whatever so initially i so it got to a point where i was just like right fuck it i'll, I'll just get the gear and do it myself because i dabbled in music production stuff in the past so um so that happened so i already sort of had a, a bit of a you know bit of a way with um producing music albeit the sense of our stuff was a lot more raw um than the camino royal stuff so then fast forward a few months um march 2020 the lockdown kicks off we decide to put Saint Sapphire on hold for a bit but I was still writing a lot of music um and you know I had all the gear that I recorded the Saint Sapphire album with so actually one of the songs um the first song on the album um a song called Absent I actually recorded just for the crack myself before um the lockdown that see came. I got a very just to interrupt that the first time I listened to that song it gave me a very you know like sci-fi vibe yeah and you were saying as well just an interesting note to people like the Camino and your name comes from obviously Camino and Star Wars yeah um yeah just put it in there like being some massive Star Wars fans like but um yeah. just we interesting you know like pub question but go ahead sorry uh, anyway I had recorded absent before the lockdown because I I'd never really experimented with sort of programming a beat so i programmed this beat um the sort of irregular beat which was you know became which became the beat in the song and just sort of built the song around i just did that for the crack then the lockdown happened um obviously we put the band on hold um but then i played that song to my dad and he was like oh wow that, that, that's actually really interesting so um ended up just sort of recording a bunch of you know sort of gradually over the course of the lockdown sort of you know writing a bunch of other songs i think a couple of ideas from some of the songs came from from song ideas that would have but i think probably would have ended up as sense off our songs but um yeah that just built up over the course of those months and i was you know at, at the end of the day you know i was quite happy for that because you know uh you know 
unlike a lot of other people where the lockdown stopped being stuck inside unable to do a lot of things you know it was sadly it's been very very detrimental to a lot of people's mental health but it was actually pretty good yeah. for mine i was able to keep myself busy I was, I was very happy about that um so there was no plan to be like all right um gonna do an album it got to the point where i just recorded a lot of these songs and then suddenly it was like oh i have, I have enough, songs enough to, to make an album to yeah to yeah. make an album i mean obviously i mean once i got to the point where it's like oh there's enough songs to make an album i went in at various points and sort of tried to sort of put in little things that would tie it all together so like one of the last songs on the album is quite a long song called new world order and there's a bit in it that um has a wee riff that um is a reprise of the riff from absent which is the first song in the album because i like the idea of having light motifs that sort of bookend yeah, like releases. Full circle yeah yeah like so i would agree like that idea you know of lockdown benefiting is you know it's a nice thing that that you know actually lockdown isn't the end of the world for a lot of people yeah. and it's actually you know a benefit and it was the same with me like this podcast you know i set it up over lockdown because i couldn't get any other experience you know in like media and stuff yeah. and it's it's really helped me you know what i mean since then you know it's given me something to do it's you know motivated me right you know recording it editing it getting guests on and stuff it's kept me busy yeah and i suppose you know would you say that not only has it kept you busy obviously you know making the album and stuff and obviously you know helped your mental health because you know there's a lot Massively, of time yeah being stuck in the house and having nothing to do and being left with your thoughts is a nightmare but do you also think the lockdown has maybe improved you know do you think the album and stuff and the songs and stuff in general and like the whole project has benefited because you've had more time to work on it too i think definitely yeah and actually you know not even on a on a musical side um as you said from a mental health side the 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 lockdown was actually quite helpful for me as well because you know before the lockdown happened you know bad space for quite a while and i remember what was really it was you know what i what i really regret was one of the last the last saint sapphire gig we did um i was drinking a lot at the time and I don't remember a whole lot about that last Saint Sapphire gig because I was really steaming the whole time. Yeah. And it was a really shite performance. You know, there wasn't a great feeling all around. And I remember um, we would occasionally have these band meetings at the Duke of York. And, you know, one of the, thing that, one of the things that came up was, right, Sam, you need to stop drinking before gigs. Um, so, you know, I went into the lockdown, not in a great space, but actually being able to sort of take a lot of time to work on all this music and work on a load of other things you know was actually really really helpful and you know i'm probably a better person yeah because of it which is which is it's mad but it's also sad in a way because i'm probably one of the small minority who can say that you know there are a lot of other people who you know the lockdown has been the exact opposite for them you know yeah would you say like um you know staying on the lockdown sort of subject that obviously it, you've benefited in the sense that you know because you only created the project over lockdown you haven't really had the chance, you know, to, you wouldn't probably by this point have been doing a lot of shows anyway. You'd have probably been planning the music more and stuff, recording yeah. it and stuff. But do you think, you know, obviously now when things open up again, I assume you're going to start, you know, doing gigs and shows. Because is that, I assume uh, that's, the, is that the most? I don't know. I'm no? not sure, to be honest. I mean, um. Like, would you like enjoy, like, what would you, what do you enjoy the most, I suppose, out of writing the music making the composing the beats or i much i uh, another thing that sort of became apparent to me over lockdown is i actually much prefer the writing and production yeah. process as opposed to playing live anytime someone's asked me about sort of ever playing the stuff live um i'm i'm fairly impartial about that if there's like if you know for whatever reason if there's like a massive demand for you know a live performance of the music yeah sure why yeah. not but you know if it if you know there's no like immediate desperate desperate plans to play it live yeah you know? i see i think that there you know 
is very very interesting because most people and most you know through my own sort of knowledge of you know listening to other people doing interviews and stuff a lot of artists enjoy the live performance more than anything yeah but to me personally i've always thought myself that if i was you know to be a musician or something i would enjoy the more like intricate stuff you know like because obviously performing live is raw it's in the moment it's you know you do it at the time and that's it then you go home where and it's more for the benefit i think of you know the customer like who's paid to see the fans and stuff whereas i think you know composing a song you know from writing the lyrics to composing the music for it and stuff and getting everything to fit in perfectly recording it in a studio or whatever and then listening to it back and you know after you've edited it mastered it whatever and then it sounds you know you're like you know what that's perfect to me that seems to be more of a that would be more of an internal satisfaction than doing a great show and hearing the cheers from the crowd because yeah. it's a longer process would you agree or you know um, i think it, it all comes down to sort of personal preference you know i know a lot of people who as you say get a lot more from playing live and you can understand that because i think it's one thing being in a studio where sort of the limited people around are like oh this is good there's a difference between that and sort of being in front of a crowd of people who are all you know for that who are all appreciating something you've written and you know played like external gratification yeah whereas i mean i wouldn't say i'm particularly uh, i mean i was I, i suppose i remember when i was younger um well, I say younger as if I'm really, really old. <laughs> like a year or two ago, I was really motivated by playing gigs. But now, I think now because maybe because I've just got like everybody else gotten out of the practice of playing gigs. You know, I've just sort of, as I said, I've grown to appreciate yeah. the behind the scenes stuff a lot more. And I've sort of realized that's probably the thing I've always enjoyed the most. You know, See, I think as well, it's there are different, you know, obviously people assume when they don't really know what's going on that everything is just the one sort of skill set. Yeah. And you know, I remember very clearly, I went to Longitude in 2018, I think. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know Longitude, it's a, basically a music festival in Dublin. Um, and it's basically, you know, like hip-hop and R&B, that sort of stuff. And I remember going to it and expecting, you know, like J. Cole, for example. At that point in time, not anymore, but then J. Cole was kind of like my favorite artist. And listening to his music and stuff and the lyrics and stuff that he had in his songs, you know, that were re- like it was really good. You know, it was you could tell, you know, in terms of like hip-hop and stuff the lyrics were probably up there with the best at the time Mm. then there were other artists that were going to be there like gigs for example who you know his lyrics don't really mean anything so when you're listening to them in your headphones you know would listen to it in the gym but it doesn't have the same feeling or you know what you'd get from listening to a j cole album yeah but then live it was a complete reverse yeah gigs was phenomenal live because the songs were you know like they were basically parties party anthems you know what i mean and there were anthems when everybody was together in a group that you'd go mental to yeah whereas j cole was more you know chilled out you know what you'd listen to with a few of your mates or that sort of thing and people don't really seem to realize that so people will see artists live and think he was shit live he's a shit artist yeah and like people would also do the reverse and see someone live who like gigs i don't get me wrong j cole is a far superior artist to gigs still in my opinion Mm. gigs is just better putting on a show do you know what i mean and do you think you know does it frustrate you to a degree because it always frustrated me you know when people judge artists and stuff on one small thing so like you know they might get a good beat but the lyrics are awful yeah but they're like oh what a great artist like uh, drake's probably the perfect example you know he's always got great beats 
But as you know, apart from that, he's not got a lot going yeah. for him. I mean, I never thought Drake was all that. I remember when God's Plan came out, everybody was going wild. But for the it. beat was class. Yeah. That was what it but was. The beat apart from it. the beat, I was like, God's Plan, God's Plan. I remember thinking, it's not all that. No, you're right. But people love that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And people, you know, love that kind of like, you know, they just want a quick sort of like, oh, the beat's good, buzzing and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, you know, that, the individual listening to that is fine. It's harmless. But in terms of the artistry, it must frustrate you know you as an artist it must frustrate other artists and stuff when you know that's all people really like and you can't really blame people themselves but it it, it do you know what i mean yeah like and think that's maybe why you don't enjoy you know because obviously as you said about like external gratification drake makes that beat or whatever whoever makes that beat's probably not him but he makes a beat and then goes plays it live and everybody goes mad yeah and people you know drake thinks to himself wow that's unreal whereas for yourself you kind of strike me more as the kind of individual who, whether people clapped or booed, you would kind of just be like, well, I like it and I know it's good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, no, 100%. And it's interesting you say you're sort of comparing artists live to studio performances. There, I mean, even though, like, say with myself, I would much prefer the studio stuff. There are a lot of artists and bands that play a kind of music that is much better suited to a live setting. Like, I don't know if you would listen to a lot of jazz fusion. Yeah. I think jazz fusion, as a, a I, I've sort of, ended up listening to a lot of it recently so like all the chick korea stuff like you know return to forever earthworks brandex mavish new orchestra all that stuff it's the kind of music where you know it's difficult to get into if you're sat there listening to it but it's completely different live because you're sat there watching these amazing musicians just just melt your face in front yeah, of you yeah. whereas you know you don't get the same experience listening to it on record but um what was the other part of the question again what was it i asked um ah yeah so for yourself like um individually like do you kind of, you know, as an artist, do you feel that you need, obviously it would seem you don't, but do you feel that you need the gratification from people to know that your art, like your work is good? Like, is there that doubt? Like when you make, like when you've made that album and stuff, right? Obviously you've got, you know, glowing reviews for it and stuff. You get a lot of listeners on Spotify, which obviously, you know, yeah. kind of backs up what you would, like you wouldn't put it out if you didn't think it was good. Yeah. But do you have in the back of your head, you know, that kind of doubt that, oh, is this really as good as I think it is? Or do you just, are you convinced, you know, even if it, you know, let's say nobody listened to it, would you still just be like, well, I enjoy it. I don't need the gratification from other people. And then you get that internal gratification that yeah. I've made a good thing, whether other people like it or not. Um, well, I, I'm the kind of person where, um, say if I'm ever working with anybody else and sort of, you know, they're writing a song, they're producing a song and they're like, oh yeah, this is perfect. That's usually the point where I'm like, that's where you should be starting to worry I'm the kind of person where as proud as I am of a song, I never like I never like to say the 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 magic P word. Yeah. Because as soon as you say that something's perfect, there's not there's nowhere you can go from there. And there's always there's there's always somewhere you can go from there. You know, um so I've never sort of got, come from the perspective of, well, well, this is a perfect song, nothing needs to be done to it. Um but I guess if you've ever been in a band when you were younger where I mean I remember the very, very first iteration of Saint Sapphire was with two of my schoolmates, Ricky and Jack. We were a band called the Adrenaline Junkies. And I think at the time, it was great. But we can all look back and probably say we were shite. We were really, really bad. And, you know, I've you know, any band who has sort of played the circuit like that will have played gigs to empty rooms. Yeah. So I don't know whether it would be right to say you sort of build a thick skin during that and you sort of learn to rely not rely as much on external gratification but yeah i mean if i if i yeah i mean 
if I ever if I produce something that I'm particularly proud of, you know, as long as I'm happy with it, then fair enough. And if other people get something out of it, then that's a really yeah. nice bonus. Yeah, like I, that was very interesting the way you said about thick skin there and about you know, like we I was talking to I said off off uh, Mike we were talking about you know I was talking to me about you know football culture and about how you know if you go into that sort of environment you know when you start off at the bottom you need to have that thick skin yeah. because people will you know kind of rattle you and stuff yeah. and it's the same you know like i remember when i was younger you know i went to i think it was they used to do hip-hop shows in what do you call it there's a bar in belfast like the oldest bar in belfast it's kelly's down, no no it's down i think it might be kelly's cellar down near the albert clock oh McHugh's. McHugh's, yes yeah. that's yeah so i went down there a few times you know just to listen and stuff played many um, games there yeah and yeah in the basement yeah, yeah so i they used to have like a hip-hop show um down there where local acts and stuff would have came on and performed or whatever and i remember going down and people would have just picked the mic up and just started rapping yeah. and i always thought to myself you know i always had the urge to do it but you know for want of a better word i never had the balls to do it yeah. you know what i mean and i kind of regret it not necessarily in the sense at all oh, if i'd have done that i'd have been drake but just yeah. out of the sense of you know i wish i had done it you know just for my own confidence yeah and you think you know that is like how important is it for an artist to succeed you know at any sort of level to have that thick skin to have that confidence you know to be like you know what i don't care if they don't like it i'm going to do it anyway i don't care if everybody's staring at me mocking me yeah i'm going to get up and do it anyway do you know what i mean yeah i think it's it's absolutely okay to be vulnerable and to be nervous but i think especially because sort of you, you know, everybody who's ever been a musician when they were younger has always had a very sort of doughy-eyed romantic view of the music industry as being the sort of really great sort of accepting oh everybody everybody supports each other industry and I don't know whether it's just me. The older and older I've gotten, the more and more cynical I've gotten. And I've realized that it is literally fucking dog eat dog. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think you have to have some kind of confidence to be able to go into that kind of thing. And doing, you know, those those shitty shows where there's, um, you know, two men and a dog at it. <laughs> um, it helps you. Like, you know, you said about McHugh's Basement. I've played many a gig in McHugh's Basement where there have been fuck all people there. But, you know, you you know, it's not as if you can just sort of throw your head up and be like, well, there's not many people here. I'm yeah. just not going to do it. You still got to go and do it anyway and just face the music, you know, <laughs> yeah. for want of a better description. Yeah. Like I, you know, I think that is a very, very crucial point to a lot of people and a lot of young people in general. You know, when it comes to anything you want to do, you know, don't really give a shit about what other people think. Yeah. And don't let yourself be dictated by, you know, how other people rate you or what you think other people are doing or what they're, you know when you're out doing something you think oh he must think i'm a dick why am i here you yeah. know that sort of thing and it is very you know it, it makes a big big deal of difference confidence in anything and i think you know if you've confidence in your music or you've confidence in what you're doing whether that depending on how you get your gratitude whether that's more an internal thing or you know it's from playing gigs or it's from other people saying oh that's really good that's class whatever it's like once you get that confidence you feel so much better and yeah. it makes you do whatever you're doing to a higher degree like i remember in school or in uni sorry like i would have sat and obviously like first second year uni third year uni you gradually build up your ability to mm. write essays to do whatever because yeah. you go in first year you've never wrote an essay in your life and what you know gave me confidence was i wrote an essay and been like i don't know about that submitted it and i got the grade back and i'd have been like you know what that's a good grade i feel confident now yeah to properly go at the next essay yeah. and then you get a better mark because you trust your own ability you trust you're like something you might have took out before because you doubted it yeah you now know you know what i actually can write that yeah and i can write it well enough and 
you know, think when you're confident in music, you take more risks in terms of like, let's say, for example, you're sitting composing the album and stuff, composing individual songs for the album over lockdown, and you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, is that a bit risky or should I try this? Do you think from playing those gigs, from gaining that confidence that you would go, you'd be more likely to go, you know what, that might be risky, but fuck it, I'm going to put it in anyway. Yeah. Whereas before, you know, when you were younger, you'd have been like, ah, it's risky. I'm not going to do that. Do you know what I mean? Well, the main thing about the early Camino Royal stuff that's made it, that made it onto this album was um, some of it at the very, very outset, I was never entirely 100%. There was always sort of a bit, a bit of an idea. Oh, well, this could be a thing, you know, could, could release this. But, you know, at the back of my head, I was never entirely sure whether any of it would see the light of day. So a lot of it was just made for my own gratification, not really with the audience in mind. So there was never any thought of, oh, is this a bit risky (laughs) or whatever? Because, you know, I was never 100% sure if it was ever actually going to reach the public domain. So I guess that was quite good because, you know, if I was 100% sure, okay, this is going to at some point reach the public domain, possibly there were a couple of decisions, you know, where you would have gone, oh, that might be might be a bit dodgy, might be a bit risky. Not going to do that. Um, yeah. Do you think, um, like, in terms... That's very interesting you say that about you were just doing it for internal gratification. Do you think a lot of it stemmed from, you know... So you were doing the album mainly to keep busy more than anything Pretty else? Pretty much, yeah. Like, to make yourself feel that you've... Oh, right, I've nothing to do today. Yeah. If I go write a song, I'll feel better. You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent, brilliant. Yeah, no, no, yeah, that, that that that's absolutely right. I mean, I was, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people were furloughed, but I also worked as a deliver uh, as a delivery driver over the lockdown, so I was still doing things like that. But you know, other, you know, at other times where you know you would have like maybe gone to see your mates or gone to the pub or whatever, or just don't done whatever. Obviously, you were stuck inside doing nothing. So yeah, absolutely. You know, there'd be days where you know I'd be feeling a bit rubbish, and I'd go and work on a piece of music, and I'd feel immediately, yeah. you know, a lot better. That's a perfect example of like it being therapy you yeah, know what i mean and absolutely because yeah. you hear that a lot like i hear you know a lot of the time artists and you know people in general sportsmen anyone who's big up and famous and stuff will romanticize what they do and it's almost it happens so often to the point where you're just like i don't really believe you yeah you know what i mean but that's interesting that you said that you know it shows a key example of you know there'll be other people sitting who have been well i got fit over lockdown simply because it helped me you know maintain my mental health yeah. and, you know at the end of the day you could sit down and be like i've done something yeah which is like a form of therapy you know what yeah. i mean and it's interesting you say that about your music and stuff because that is you know a hands-on example of music being therapy mm. and it also you know just doing something productive yeah you know what i mean like i think that's that is very interesting but in terms of you know we're talking about risks and stuff in the album and whether you took risks or not in terms of you know one song that jumped out of me was obviously the tame impala cover yeah um Based on that, as soon as I listened to that, I went, okay. I saw the similarities in the sense that obviously Team Impala is a project, which a lot of people don't understand. Like, people think Team Impala is like a group. Yeah. But it's, it's just one guy, guy who Kevin does Parker. everything. But then when they perform, obviously. Gets live musicians. Yeah. In. And obviously, you're like, you know, the Camino Royale project is, you know, when you read it on your Spotify bio and stuff, yeah. it doesn't say Camino Royale is, as in you know what's your stage name it's yeah. like camino royale is a project yeah by sam morgan yeah explain that kind of to people who don't really understand what the difference is in terms of if you were to adopt like camino royale as your stage name compared to it being a project of sam morgan if you know what i mean i mean initially camino royale was thought of as sort of a bit of a stage name because you know 
you know, everybody has insecurities and it's the first, and it, like, when it comes to releasing music, up until this point, I had never, ever, ever released or performed any music without anybody else. Yeah. So I was initially a bit, I thought, of, you know, when you initially think, oh, if you're releasing music by yourself, just have it under sort of Samuel J.R. Morgan or whatever. And I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. So, you know, you came up with a bit of a cool name around it. But um, it's a bit like um, anytime I do film work, you know, I don't say music you know it doesn't say music music composed by camino royal it says yeah. music composed by samuel jr morgan because you know that's that's my name and i'm the guy who composed the music and as you say camino royal is just sort of a bit of a name to throw yeah. any of that yeah it's it's a pro it's it's a project it's a sort of whether it's a, it's not so much a continuation of sort of the band stuff or whatever but yeah it was just sort of a project name mainly because i wasn't entirely 100 percent on the idea yeah. of just releasing it under my own name you know yeah I, it's interesting you say that like it is quite funny i always find how artists you know come up with names and you get very very few artists who just perform under their actual name yeah. unless it's maybe you know i don't know like i don't even know what genre like reggae or something or like you know but um do you think that gives you like being able to write and perform under like camino royale does that give you more sort of confidence that oh you know this is a project of me it's not necessarily me myself do you know what i mean yeah like it's kind of like i was thinking you know a while back about writing um like starting trying to write novels and stuff but and you know when i was thinking of like pen names and why people came up with pen names and the more i thought about it i was like if i wrote by jordan moore i don't think i'd feel as confident writing it as if i wrote like by j.s mills or something mm. you know what i mean is it the same sort of idea do you think with yourself and with other artists that you know performing under a stage name sort of gives them more confidence or separates their work from who they are as a person if you know what I, I think mean? yeah definitely that but then also um you know if you just release sort of if i were really if i were to release that kind of um the camino royal music under my my actual name you know anytime i, I go back to the film stuff anytime i were to release any sort of film soundtracks etc people sort of lump that in as being the same thing when they're very very different whereas yeah. you know camino royale is a good outlet for any sort of songwriting stuff i have but then the film stuff is completely separate from that yeah. so it's a good it's good artist separation yeah yeah so it makes like when people look and see by sam morgan on a comp composition or something they don't think oh that's camino royale they don't, and then, yeah they don't think oh that's yeah. going to be like a camino royale song you know because i that's very interesting you know that lack of separation can sometimes put you off and stuff because yeah. i was watching formula one drive to survive and netflix and one of the backing tracks was i don't know if you ever played this game but mass effect oh yes and one of the back and one of the music in the background during one of the episodes was like music from mass effect yeah and it was music written specifically for mass effect and when i heard it you know out of the context yeah, of mass effect i i, I laughed because i thought that's so weird and yeah. i just no matter how much i listen to it i was like that just doesn't fit yeah it probably does to somebody who doesn't know it but yeah. because i was so used to it being like you know shooting aliens and you yeah. know sci-fi and all and then here it was at a formula one podium i was just you know what i mean it yeah. put me off but talking about um <clears throat> it'd be a bit like hearing you know the star wars theme over snooker or something <laughs> yeah it just doesn't fit yeah. but for someone who hasn't heard it they'd probably be like, you know what, that's all right. They wouldn't yeah. even notice. But then for people who have, they're like, that's Star Wars. It's kind of like being typecast. Yeah. And, you know, like actors being typecast in films and stuff. Like you see, you know, you know that was a big issue, I think, with the original cast of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Like Mark Hamill obviously done voice acting, which was different. But, you know, for the stuff he did in person, you were just like, it's Luke Skywalker. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like seeing with Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford kind of 
branched out of that. But even still, if I saw Harrison Ford in a movie, it's like, oh, that's Indiana Jones or that's Han Solo. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it kind of, I don't know, it kind of separates you from the film a wee bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I was going. What, what was I going to talk about? There's something that was literally in my head, and it's just disappeared. What was it? Um, oh yeah, talking about um, you know your music and stuff, and you know separating things. You talked about composing, so. I've seen, you know, you've composed for maybe three or four individual, like, small sort of local, like, film productions and a cartoon as well. It, what's interesting is all the all the films um, I've composed for, not a single one of them has been based in Northern oh, Ireland. Oh, really? I, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting how I got into the film stuff. I The first film I um, had any musical involvement with was the summer after we left school. And I didn't really know anything about writing music basically a friend of mine who i knew in england will who i would later go on to work with on the on the cartoon thing which i'll get to knew a guy in america called caleb robinson who was a filmmaker and caleb robinson had a composer called john rivet working on it was a film called living with trevor he had a composer john rivet working on the film but i'm not entirely sure why for whatever reason john rivet had to had to drop out and uh, caleb was drop was um talking to will and I was doing a couple of band things at the time that Well was aware of. So Well said to Caleb, well, this guy's um he writes music because obviously I think the general idea must be sort of, oh, you know, if you if you're in a band and you write and you write songs, you know, you can write music. Because that's how I thought. Because when Caleb approached me about it, he's just like, Do you want to sort of finish a couple of pieces for this film? I thought, well, I write songs, therefore I can probably write music for a film. And basically just sort of I managed to bullshit my whole way through it and sort of learnt as I went along. Yeah. So like what is the key difference between because obviously you have musical composers and they're not music nine times out of ten they're not artists as well yeah what is the key sort of you know differences you noticed when you first started because obviously you've been writing like music for songs and stuff for a while yeah what was the key difference when you started doing it for you know obviously for movies and stuff and for film or whatever that was so different to writing it for songs the key difference um is that if you're writing a song either for yourself to perform or for another artist or whatever that song is the center of attention whereas for better or for worse music in a film is not the center of attention i think i think a, a characteristic of a really poor film score is if it's really distracting from what's happening on screen so that's the main difference you're not writing with the music in being the main focus yeah. you, you're not writing with that in mind you're sort of, tr and you know, the good thing about working with Caleb on Living with Trevor, and then I would later go on to compose the full score for his next film. The great thing about working with someone like Caleb is he was like sometimes, like, I love the guy, but he was sometimes really, really, like, annoyingly particular about what he wanted for certain bits. And yeah, that's the main difference. You know, when you're writing a song for an artist or for yourself to perform, that's the center of attention, yeah. but film music is totally different. So it's like trying to write something that is going to be impactful for what's happening but also not to the point that it's going to distract from what's going on i think i have always viewed that there's three tiers of film music i think there's per film there's per film music where the music just isn't that good there's good film music where um you're watching the scene and you you know you listen to the music and your immediate observation is oh this music's really good oh this is good but then i think great film music is film music where you don't really notice that it's there until it were like to say if it unless it were like sort of immediately take you know taken yeah, out yeah. and then suddenly you would notice the difference but otherwise you wouldn't really have noticed that it's <laughs> yeah. there it's almost like hiding in plain sight yeah, yeah absolutely like i you know i know what you mean because there's times i'll watch films and you don't even when you're watching it you don't it's almost like subconscious like yeah. you don't even hear the music 
but the music kind of still affects you. Do you know what I mean? And like, I think that's what makes the likes of, you know, like Star Wars and stuff and John Williams and stuff composing that. Obviously, there are bits where the music is really impactful. Yeah. All of it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like Jewel of Fates, for example, right? Episode one, you know, Maul comes out, double lightsaber comes out. You're like, wow. And then the music comes on and the music is so distinct and it's so overpowering in that moment. Yeah. But then it dies down yeah. and you almost forget it's there. You do, yeah. Do you know 100%, what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I think it, uh, certainly because it's such a big, impactful moment. And for all, I mean, I'm because I'm also big into politics, I'm one of the few people that really, really, really enjoys The Phantom Menace. The main complaint a lot of people have with the Phantom Menace is, oh, it's just a load of babbling politicians. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, but that's my thing. But obviously, even people who don't like it, you know, when when, when the blast doors open, Darth Maul's standing there, it's like, oh, we'll handle this. You're like, yes. So the music cue had to be really, really dramatic there. But, you know, absolutely, as the scene plays out, the music kind of, I mean, obviously, you're still aware that it's there because it's awesome. It's John Williams. (laughs) It's awesome. But, you know, it's not as overpowering as it had to be in that first bit. Whereas, you know what? That is, that does... You know, the fact you've said that about, you know, the less kind of, like you originally said, you know, the less you hear of it, or the less you notice, the better. Yeah. But then it's also about in key moments, Mm. really hearing it. Yeah. And, you know, it's finding that balance of, right, it needs to be really impactful here. Yeah. But that same thing can't be impactful here. It has to be quieter here. It has to be more chilled out. Yeah. you know, and I, it does seem like a very difficult balancing act. Yeah, you know, just strike a balance. Like, and I think a more recent example is, um, like, I can't remember. Were you ever into like, were you, you were into Marvel and DC? Yeah, yeah Have yeah. you seen Zack Snyder's Justice League? No. Yes. Um. At the end, uh, no, not I haven't seen the Justice League, but I've seen um Batman versus Superman. Right. Well, I was go- seen in that. I was going to sort of. I'll not spoil it. I was going to quote. Go it ahead. In. I don't I w- really. I don't really like well, DC. Well, okay. So. I'll not. I'll not explain what's happening in the <laughs> don't scene. Worry. There's a great scene yeah. at the end uh, with the Flash, where the music is re- the, the music is really really important because um I mean there's not really much I can there's not really much else I can say without spoiling it and no matter what you say <laughs> I don't want to spoil it but you should go and watch it because yeah. like I mean did you see the theatrical cut the Joss Whedon version? No. Right. Well, don't go and watch that because. <laughs> It's, it's like shite. four hours long. Or, oh no, that's six. Zack Snyder, Snyder's Justice League is four hours long. But actually, what I remember going into that thinking, oh, it's gonna be four hours long. Oh, but so much happens that yeah. it doesn't really dawn on you that it's four hours long. But yeah, there's a bit with Flash towards the end that is one of the big climaxes of the film, where the this where basically most of the sound design drops out and it's mainly dri- um, driven by the music. I remember. Um, I haven't seen the film for a while, but another example of that was: Did you ever see the Creed films? Yeah. I think um it was towards the end of the first it was towards the end of the the the, the training montage yeah the classic yeah. The, you you've <laughs> always got to have the training montage and towards the towards the climax of the training mo- montage basically all the sound design drops out and it's mainly just dr- driven by the music so yeah there are moments where the music should lead the scene should obviously lead the scene but um the key is making sure that the music doesn't do that yeah. all the time because the music can't do that all the time. Yeah, because then it distracts from yeah. the film itself. Yeah. So how many how many movies then have you, or short films or whatever, have you composed for now? Um, well, living with... I mean, you in, in, uh, with anybody else, you'd do short movies and then, you know, you might end up doing a feature film. I was basically dropped in at the deep end. Um, living with Trevor is a feature film, but I had only sort of done... I only um, composed a few pieces here and there just to clean up the score. And even then, it wasn't really in my style. It was in the style of the music that was already there. I just sort of had to fill in a few gaps. But then the next film Caleb approached me for um, was a film called Not So Amazing, where I composed the whole score. 
and um you know caleb's the kind of person where you know the first cut of the film was over three hours long <laughs> so um i was dropped in right at the deep end doing a feature film score and then i've ended up doing um short films after that so like i've just finished well i say just finished um a couple of months ago i finished working on a short film called um all that you love will be carried away which is an, an adaption of a stephen king short story um which is actually being premiered at the uh, on the 23rd of april at the dollar baby film festival which is the film festival that stephen king yeah. set up because obviously he had to license out all these short stories yeah, yeah. so um currently working on that at the moment and then a couple of couple of other things you know coming up no feature films coming up it's all just short films at the moment because actually you know going back to praising caleb a lot of people when you know they work on low budgets don't really have the balls to try and do full like yeah. feature films you can really only sort of operate within the parameters of doing short films so you know props to the guy for having the balls to actually go and <laughs> yeah. try and do feature films you know do you think um would like if in the future if you had to go down one avenue would you prefer to go down the composer route or would you prefer to go down the the artist route? You know, probably the composer, composer route. Composer, yeah, yeah, the composer route because that's what I get. That's what I've gotten. That's what I've sort of realized. I've gotten gratification out of the most is actually writing the music. Um, but I mean, I don't know. As I said, you know, when when we were having the live music discussion, if enough people wanted to see a Camino Royale live gig, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, you're not going to turn it down. Yeah, why yeah. not? You know, yeah, uh, you know. I do you think um, in terms of that, then. Do they both, like, writing music for songs and for performances and stuff and writing music for, a, like, a movie or TV show, whatever, do they complement each other in terms of do you learn things doing each that yeah. can be brought, you know, intertwined and can oh, help yeah, one or the other? You, I mean, doing stuff for films where, you know, um, depending on the scene or whatever, you know, there's a great scope, whether you're implementing orchestral instruments or whatever and sort of, um, sort of, you know, compositional techniques for orchestral music you can carry that over into um the more sort of singer songwritery stuff which i which i have ended up doing but then also the subtlety which you know you have to sort of try and implement with film music you can then carry over into yeah. um into singer songwriter stuff as well so you know yeah no yeah you know, yeah absolutely yeah. you know one can complement the other but you know the important thing i always find is they don't have to be sort of mutually exclusive things thankfully i don't have to be sort of faced with the task of do i want to be just a composer or just an artist like say Stuart copeland one of the greatest drummers of all time you know from the police is also a film composer yeah he also does music for things you know everybody's at it you know yeah why not? yeah if you enjoy making music yeah you're going to enjoy making it anyway. even beyond the parameters of just doing music you look at someone like that youtuber ksi yeah he's a youtuber he's a rapper yeah. he's a good rapper actually he's come out with some really good tunes and then yeah. you know he's, he also does boxing as well you know you know people it do is, bits of everything i know? think yeah it is mad that you say that now about you know because when we were growing up when we were younger and stuff um you know as i say as if we're ancient now but like you know when we were primary school age and stuff people were just one thing or the other yeah you know people didn't branch out into you know different things like i remember the first thing that ever hit me was i think it was kimmy reikonen formula one world champion left formula one to race rally cars which is basically the same you know it's the same discipline yeah. it's just a different sort of version and even then i was like geez like you know what i mean i was like that's you know impressive yeah. now you have so many people who you know they're artists like they're musical artists then they're like childish gambino music artist Actor. you know actor producer 
you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he was a composer as well. That wouldn't even surprise me. He's a me. great writer. Yeah. Um, Don, Don Glover, yeah, yeah, he wrote the whole thing. He not write all of Atlanta. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing is as well, even in his music, he goes from hip hop to like jazz to like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I actually really, really like the Gambino music because I, exactly as you said, because I really like artists that sort of dabble in different things. And obviously yeah. his producer um, slash co-writer Ludwig Göransson, who, you know, did the, did the music for the Creed films, did the Mandalorian. He's probably one of my favorite composers yeah. at the moment because, you know, he, he, you know, he doesn't limit himself to just doing film scores. He also, you know, not only is he, you know, produced, you know, not only is he composed the score for, you know, the the show that launched Disney Plus or the most recent you know Christopher Nolan film you know he was also the writer you know he was also the writer and producer for you know songs like Redbone yeah and this is America and stuff like that you know I I I love it when people can cross over and do different things like that and like you know it's 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 interesting as you you said you know as you know not to sort of make it sound as if we're ancient or anything because we're not but going back to like the YouTube or KSI what I find really bizarre is like when we were younger and like you'd be watching youtube i remember being aware of ksi ksi was he was a fifa youtuber he was yeah. one of these people who sort of made videos of him playing you know fifa and video games and stuff so it never ceases to amaze me seeing him on like celebrity bake-off <laughs> or getting into a ring yeah. being announced by like bruce buffer or, some, or on top gear i'm like <laughs> this guy's a fifa youtuber like this is mad it is like, or like doing songs with young blood or yeah. or you know rick ross i remember that's that last boxing match he did with that other youtuber logan paul rick ross rapped as he came into the <laughs> ring i was like that's mental that's it, amazing it is it is like um what do you call him damian lillard the professional basketballer in the nba he's also like a like a pretty good rapper like i mean you know i think he's maybe near a million listeners on spotify you know we if he wasn't a basketballer you know, like so many, like people I know, I've played his music and they haven't even batted an eye. Yeah. You know, and it is, you know, he got a lot of criticism for doing that. They're yeah. like, oh, you should just stick to basketball and stuff. And I'm he, like, why? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't affect his basketball. Yeah. And, you know, any way he can make money for his family, any way he can, you know, f- like fuel his own interests and yeah. get involved in things, why not? Do you know what I mean? I think the only argument you can make for that is if it's a sports person, like, say, you know, I, I'm not. It's not. I don't keep going back to him because I'm a fan of the guy. Um, not a huge fan of the guy, but you know, I'm impressed by that. Going back to the the YouTuber KSI, I think because he fluctuates between doing the boxing stuff and doing music. I think if you're spending so much time working on music and then, like, say, going on tour or whatever, that could be time that otherwise yeah. you could spend training or whatever. And it's exactly the same with the basketball player you said there. You know, any time he spends doing music could be spent training or whatever that's the only real yeah. argument you can make for that but even then you know you can make time for these yeah. things it's kind of like i think you know it depends how good you want to be at yeah. something so like for example you know um i don't know if you take tiger woods mm. tiger woods you know would never have been the golfer he was if he decided he wanted to do a rap career because yeah. he wouldn't have had the time you know damien lillard in doing his rap career maybe takes away from the fact that he could be a better basketballer yeah same as if he focused solely on his hip-hop, he yeah. could be a better rapper. But I suppose, you know, at the end of the day, people do enjoy variable things. You know, people don't just like one thing or another. And I think the main idea for years was, right, you like a lot of things, pick the one you like the most mm. and do it as a career. Yeah. Whereas now, I think, you know, with the advent of social media and, you know, internet and, you know, all sorts of technologies that enable you to quickly network with different people that you want to do different things. Like, you can just be like, right, well... I'm a basketballer, but I want to make music. I can just buy the equipment and make it and yeah. put it on Spotify without having to go through any record labels or anything. And it's things like that that I think people are realizing, you know, I really like this, 
but I also like this. Yeah. Why don't I just do this as well? Yeah. I think there's two sides to, to all of those things. Like you say, you know, if you want to sort of make music, you nowadays, you know, as you say, you can get the equipment and you can do it. There are two sides to that. I think there's one side, the positive side where, you know, that could sort of give a platform because, and also because, you know, it's not as if, you know, to get your stuff out on Spotify, you have to go through record labels. Now, they're not like DistroKid, CD Baby. There are websites and independent distributors who, if you sign up, you know, they'll yeah. they'll distribute the stuff for you. That's good because it gives a platform to people who otherwise, you know, might have been sort of uncut, sort of, you know, undiscovered gems. But at the same time, I remember seeing um, a guy comment, um, reacting to... Um, I can't remember what it was one of these these SoundCloud mumble rappers <laughs> and well, well it's not my thing but I can but you yeah. know obviously no, yeah, I'm not yeah. I'm not going to I'm not going to criticize cuz you know obviously a lot of people like it but you know this guy said you know oh yeah back in, and you know it maybe sounded like a bit of an arsehole but I could sort of understand what he was saying he was like oh well back in my day you know you actually had to have sort of talent work your way up to the point where you can get discovered by record labels and sort of you and you sort of you earn it Whereas these days, sort of anybody can do it. And he's sort of got a point there because anybody can do it now. Yeah. There's much less of a sort of an attrition factor for, you know, weeding out people who aren't particularly good at it. Yeah. But I, I, I would I would personally focus a lot more on, you know, this could give a platform to someone who otherwise would have gone undiscovered yeah. by record labels. Would you say like the benefits then of, you know, modern technology and music in terms of, you know, allowing anybody to put music out there and anybody to try and, you know, get signed or whatever outweighs the fact that you know it does take away that kind of direct like that kind of like work rate that you need to get there in the first place do you think that outweighs i think it's that's a difficult question because um i'm not sure whether it outweighs because i think the fact that it has taken away that um that sort of side of the workload and really sort of earning it um means i get means that maybe i mean there's the argument of well artists these days aren't as good as they were in my day um, and maybe that is true because maybe the artists who, you know, are sort of killing it today didn't work as hard as artists have done back in the day. But as I said, I would, I would, I, 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 I try to be optimistic yeah. and I try to view it as, yeah, I, if anybody can do it, anybody can give it a shot, go for it. You know? Yeah. I think I, you know, I, I know what you mean. Like it's a very, you know, gray area yeah. in the sense that it's hard to tell where like, there's a perfect thing in football where people will be like, oh. If he'd have taken his two chances, we'd be 2-0 up. Yeah. But then you say, well, no, because if he'd have scored the first one, the rest of the game would have played out differently. Yeah. And it's like the same, I suppose, in this. It's like, would he have made it as an artist 30 years ago? And you're like, well, how can you tell? Because, okay, maybe he didn't work as hard to get to where he is mm. because he didn't need to. But 30 years ago you know if he had worked as hard yeah would he have probably got there you know and even and that it, is a completely different musical landscape yeah. with you know it's it's impossible to say yeah you know? it's too there's too many variables to properly pin it down but i do understand the point of you know anybody can put a song out there within an hour yeah and it can go global you know what i mean it's like uh what do you call her madison beer oh um, yes. i'm pretty sure she got her fame through she put a video on youtube and justin bieber saw it yeah and went uh, like her and then got would like basically told her their his record label right sign her up yeah that would never have happened obviously you know 40 years ago but yeah. would she have worked 10 times harder 40 years ago maybe who knows but uh do you know what i mean I'd and it also depends entirely sort of in different sort of musical environments what people were looking for like so what i always think about is um if someone like kanye west was sort of coming through the ranks in the same sort of in this in the same age shall we say 
of the likes of Tupac or Biggie, you know, would he sort of get to where he is? Because I don't think rap for rap, I don't think Kanye is as strong a rapper as some of those 90, 90s gangster rappers. But I think what makes for Kanye is he's a fantastic producer, yeah. has a really good ear for beats, has a good ear for sampling things. And I think that's his great strength. Um, so yeah, it ent- it entirely depends on what the musical landscape of the time is looking for. But it's interesting, you know, you said about um, Madison Beer, you know, it's mad how, you know, some of these people can sort of get discovered. Like, I'm fairly, I, I don't know the girl's name. There's some girl who, I think she's a rapper at the moment, and she first came to sort of mainstream attention as being a bit of a meme from being on, like, that Dr. Phil show in America. Bad baby. That's her, yeah. yeah. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I was reading about her recently yeah. because I thought it was just bizarre. Like, have you seen the OnlyFans? Yeah, thing? yeah. I was like, sold that, out like I was made like, over a million. That's that, I was like, that's so weird. You know, she uh, when she turned eighteen and was able to get an OnlyFans. You know, she sold like over a million dollars worth of what subscriptions or whatever. I'm like, that's so weird. And it's but, all from a meme. Yeah, you know? and you know that you know obviously you know she's got a platform. She she's a rapper now or whatever yeah. whatever music she does now. I've not listened to her music, but that's all come yeah. from you know you know being a bit of a laugh on a and television I, show. I don't think, you know, a lot of people would be quick to criticize her. And I'm more like at the point, well, you know what? She's making money from it. And if that's what makes her happy, then fair enough. You go couldn't for really, it. you can't really say, well, okay, you've been given this platform. Don't use it. Yeah. Because everyone else would. So why would no, you? Yeah, 100%, you, know what I mean? you know, yeah, no, people can criticize them all they like. But at the end of the day, Bad Baby, you said her name was? Yeah. At the I end think of the it's day, bad baby. Yeah, I, I think she's so. making more money than either of us, so yeah. neither of us can criticize her. So <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. If, yeah. if, if you're rolling in it, fine. You go back to sort of the YouTube boxer argument. You know, people sort of go in there and be like, "These guys aren't real boxers." Blah blah blah. And it's like, mate, if they're making money, fair enough. Take the money and run. Go yeah, for it. A hundred percent. And like, I think it was an interesting point you made about hip hop and like you know how the basically what people are looking for in different generations and stuff. You know, my favorite artist of all time is Nas, right? Yeah. And, like, Nas's beats are not great, right? But the lyrics and like are what make him what he is. Yeah. And back then, that's what people wanted. Yeah. Now, as you say with the Kanye stuff, it's all about the production. beats. You know, it's about the production side. It's about, like, I think, you know, 20 years ago, nobody really knew any producers. You Maybe DJ Premier, maybe. But now, it's like everybody knows Metro Boomin. You know yeah. what I mean? Like... If you like, you know, the fact that the producers now start a song with, you know, their, you know, their tag at the start of it and stuff that you yeah. hear it at the start of a rap song. Whereas back then, you know, someone produced a song and no one really knew who it was. Yeah. or what, No one even cared. Whereas like the thing with Kanye is, you know, Kanye wrote a, was it, I think it was, uh, whose album was it? Pusha T. Yeah. Um, and Daytona and, you know, the al- that album was phenomenal. Because the beats were so good, you know what I mean? And I would now see Kanye more as as a producer than a yeah. rapper, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, as I said, I think that was always Kanye's great strength. He, he's a good rapper, but, yeah. you know, his strength, he, he has a great ear. And that's why I think, like, those first few Kanye albums, so, like, you know, College Dropout and all those stuff, those are awesome albums. Those are great albums, you know. I think, you know, there's. I think there's a lot to be said for people being like, oh, his music got shit ever since he married Kim Kardashian. But, you know, that's a whole different kind of worms. <laughs> yeah, well, now he's divorced, so he might... I think the, the Jesus albums weren't that great. No, you know? I. but then all artists have a drop. You know, it's very hard to stay at the top of your game for your entire existence. Plus, Let's when you're a... When you're a bi- I think, is Kanye a billionaire? When you're a millionaire, yeah, billionaire, a billionaire. When you have a lot of money and you don't... 
you don't have to sort of you lose the motivation you do you, you do lose the motivation and it's a bit like sort of it's a bit like with conor mcgregor in combat sports did you watch the last fight he had with dustin poirier i saw he lost but he I lost. never was he got he got he, I, I can't remember yeah yeah he did he got it was a tko he got knocked out and um what was interesting about that was i remember on the run-up to that watching sort of various bits of interviews etc and conor mcgregor didn't really seem that bothered about it he was like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas you know the Conor McGregor of days before and would have been sort of, you know, to his credit, you know, a lot of people, and you know, obviously has been an arsehole and has done terrible <laughs> things in the past. But I understand. I'm glad you, you said it. You can under, he has been an arsehole in the past, but you can understand that um, on the run up to fights, he wants to try and yeah. get into his oh, opponent's yeah. it's head. All you can show understand that. And stuff, yeah. It is. Um, you know, uh, well, as I said, you know, Conor McGregor, you know, of other days where he was literally fighting to make money, that's how he earned his money. Whereas, um, you know, with this fight, didn't really seem that motivated because even if he lost, he's got a lot of money. And you compare that to his opponent, Dustin Poirier, who, um, you know, well, at the end of the day, you compare the two of them. That fight, to prove himself. That fight was the first time that Conor McGregor had gotten into a cage for something like a year since, you know, well, two, I mean, I would say two years, but you do, nah, you know, no, I'm not going to count that time with Donald Cerrone where he, <laughs> where he went in for like 30 seconds. You can't count that. It was basically the first time yeah. he got into a cage for like two years. Whereas Dustin Poirier was the kind of fella who every few months was fighting a different person in the in in the cage, and even though sort of chop for chop, McGregor would be a better fighter. You know, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't yeah. work hard, 100%. and it's exactly the same with music. You know, Kanye sort of reached a point where you know he didn't particularly have to work hard to make a lot of money, so you know there was a natural drop off in the quality of the music. Do you think then staying on that topic that? Like, obviously, artists, there's a lot of things when people talk about, you know, who the like best artist is of a generation or of all time or of a specific genre or whatever. Do you think longevity and continued, you know, like high standards throughout an artist's career is a very important factor in determining, you know, how good they are overall? Yeah, I think, I, I think absolutely. And I think very few artists have been able to achieve that. Um, I think there are a couple of ways you can do that. I think there are two ends of the spectrum. What uh, There's someone like um, Lemmy from Motorhead, you know, be, because, you know, he's, he's fucking Lemmy and Motor, Motorhead are so iconic. Um, their music never really changed that much, but because it's Lemmy, you know, he's just sort of this timeless character. But then you go to the other end, you got someone like Alex Turner from the Arctic Monkeys, where, you know, ever since the second album, every album has had a slightly different feel yeah. to it. So I think actually an important key to longevity is, well... Like the Lemmy instance where you can keep doing the same music is an incredibly rare feat to achieve. The only reason Lemmy and Motorhead were able to do that because he's Lemmy. But you go back to the Alex Turner argument. I think the important, uh, an important factor going into longevity is making sure that, you know, it doesn't stagnate at any point and you're always sort of trying to refresh it a bit. And I always like artists that do that. You know, I, I, I know there are some people who sort of say, look at Arctic Monkeys and think, oh, they should go back to producing, you know, they should go back to the kind of music they were writing with that first album. But, you know, that wouldn't make a lot of sense because they were young lads back then. You know, they're, you know they've are they grown a lot. They're grown-ass men now. So I think it makes a lot of sense that artists, yeah. that their music will change as they get older. I think, you know, it is kind of, you know, what's that Bob Dylan line, you know, um, and the times are changing. He's like, don't block out the doorway, don't stand in the hall. And yeah. it's like, you know, if you stand still and do nothing, you'll, you'll be washed away with whatever comes after. Yeah. And it's like, you know, my, like Nas is a perfect example. I love Nas, right? But to Nas, like Illmatic was phenomenal. Mm. And then after that, you know, he had a few good albums, 
but he never changed the way he made music. You yeah. know, the beats were still, you know, for want of a better word, dead, right? Yeah. And, you know, because times changed, he never adapted to, you know, the modern day or what needed to be made. And he yeah. thought, you know, that probably results in why he's not as popular now. Mm. You know, he's nowhere near the same level. And it's a lot with, you know, groups from that era as well. But do you think, <clears throat> you know, personally, if a group... So I'll give you Led Zeppelin, right? There's another brilliant example. Now, obviously, their drummer died, right? So, Bonzo. yeah, so that's kind of a, you know, you can't really blame them for that. Yeah. But do you think Led Zeppelin obviously basically disbanded not that long after? Yeah. And to still to this day, Led Zeppelin are held as, you know, one of the greatest bands in history, right? If they had have continued, right, for the sake of it, and we're putting out albums that weren't as good, would their overall, like, you know, respect in the music game have fallen? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the thing a lot of people forget about, Led, when people think about Led Zeppelin, they think about those first four or five albums, which are amazing. Led Zeppelin 4 is, you know, one of the greatest yeah. albums of all time. And they often forget about later Led Zeppelin, where they had started to take the foot off the gas a bit. And my dad, um, oh, often told me about the time he saw Led Zeppelin. He saw Led Zeppelin at Nebworth, I think. And he said it was one of the worst gigs he's ever been to in his life. Apparently, they were just awful. You know, they were really, really, really dreadful. Apparently, sort of, you know, the excesses of drugs or drink or whatever had sort of started to take their toll like on the them. the downfall of Elvis a wee bit. Yeah. yeah. And then you even, like, fast forward a few years when they did that, they the, the infamous Led Zeppelin reunion at Live Aid where they had Phil Collins playing the drums. What always annoys me about that is they were shite. They were awful. And because people like to hate on Phil Collins, everyone was like, oh, it's because Phil Collins was playing the <laughs> drums. Oh, he ruined it. But actually, you know, as a drummer, if you're if, if you know anything about music or drumming, you watch that gig and you think that and you realize Phil Collins was probably the only musician yeah, there who was fairly one. on the ball. <laughs> the rest of them were just the rest of them were just yeah. off it. I mean, bless him. Jimmy Page was awful. He was dreadful. He was it's, all over it's the place. Like, you know, you see like uh, ACDC. And they're still out touring and they're still out performing. And I'm just kind of like, you know, fair enough. It's making them money and stuff. But like, I'm just like, you know, it's kind of that thing. Like, what is it? If you die, you know, obviously it's that quote, you know, they will not grow old as we grow old, referring to like soldiers that have died in battle. But it's the same with, you know, artists and stuff. Yeah. You know, if an artist stops performing in their prime, you'll only ever remember them as they were. Yeah. You'll never remember the drop off. Like to me personally... The only thing I remember of Queen, because obviously Freddie Mercury died, yeah. is, you know, the flashbacks of Live Age, you know, when they were, like, at their peak, yeah. right? When I think of ACDC, I think of them performing now yeah. at 70-odd, and the guy's still running about in, um, what do you call him? Angus Young. Yeah, still running about in, in the schoolboy school outfit. outfit. Do you know what I mean? Do you think artists should know when to just... I think, interestingly, ACDC, in my opinion, are another band who are a bit like Motorhead. I think ACDC have never really sonically changed that much, but they'll always be the ultimate party band. Yeah. They always rely on a great stage show. But I think there are a lot of artists where, because either, you know, by choice or not, um, stop doing whatever in their prime or whatever will be remembered. Like, say, you take a punk band like the Sex Pistols. Yeah. The Sex Pistols are revered the way they are because they only ever put out the one album and it was it was Nevermind the Bollocks, which is fucking awesome. <laughs> But then you go to sort of live performances and you go to someone like, say, my favorite my favorite female singer of all time, Kate Bush. 
Kate Bush um, only ever really did one proper tour. Then she never did any sort of touring again. And then even then she stopped regularly releasing music around the mid-90s. So that's how you'll remember them. Yeah, I think she did one set of concerts in 2014 and every like maybe five, six years she releases an album. But by and large, people will remember her for like Wuthering Heights and The Hounds of Love and stuff like that. So I think, um, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's a case of whether artists should know when to stop. But um, I think it, it entirely depends on what their game is. A lot of artists have been very smart and have known, you know, when to sort of give it up a bit. I think another good example of that is Steve Perry, who was the singer in Journey. He stopped singing for Journey around, I think it was, uh, they had a bit of a weird period in the in the, in the the 1990s, but I think he properly left the band um, around sort of the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, despite the fact, you know, people say, oh, it'd be great to have Steve Perry back in the band say, oh, well, our door's always open. He's always sort of maintained the attitude of, well, I'm not the singer I used to be. And, you know, I want people to remember me for, you know, the singer I was out doing Don't Stop Believing and Faithfully and all that stuff. So yeah. I think it is it is important for some artists. And I think it shows a great sign of sort of artistic maturity, knowing when to stop. But it entirely depends. You yeah, know. it is very, you know, it, it would be very difficult, you know, because no one ever wants to admit oh, I've fallen off. Yeah. You know, I'm done or, you know, I've, I've had enough. And, you know, it's very, you know, there are certain people, I think, in life that have recovered and stuff like you know, there's LeBron James is just as good now as he was 18 yeah. years ago. So that, you know, if you're still doing it, yeah, fine. You've then other people, you know, like Tiger Woods, who fell off so drastically, but then came back. And now yeah. every one of my generation kids, now like 10, 8-year-olds, 10, 12-year-olds will remember Tiger Woods as that guy who came back from back surgery to win the Masters. Yeah. Whereas before that, he ran a very, very dangerous line of being remembered by an entire generation as just a guy with a bad back. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And It's exactly the same in music. I think one of the greatest music comebacks I think ever was Green Day. You know... Do you not mean Craig David? People... People... <laughs> re people remember kids these days will remember green day for like you know american idiot and 21st century breakdown and all those stuff and you know they don't remember well obviously we do well I, we were very young at the time but i remember when american idiot came came out but in retrospect looking back obviously people you know those kids aren't aware of like say the early 2000s when say billy joe armstrong bless him they were, you know, the the they'd released an album, Warning, which wasn't that great. And like, say, in the early 90s, when they were like fierce, they were the fiercest band in the world. It really seemed like, oh, my God, this is it. They've they, they've passed it. Oh, dear. Oh, bless them. But then suddenly they come out with American Idiot, which is the sort of really sort of current politically charged album full of amazing songs. And I'll, that'll never cease to amaze yeah. me. I'm like, that is incredible how a band could go from being oh, bless them, I think they're on the way out to going back to having a second wind of being the biggest band in the world. Yeah, everybody loves a comeback story. Yeah, 100%. Um, and it doesn't matter what sport it is, what music it is, whether it's movies, you know. It's the same way actors and stuff. Um, Who was it not that long ago? Had a Kurt Russell. There's mm. a perfect example. Kurt Russell, great 80s, 90s actor, disappeared, and then he reappeared in, like, Fast and Furious, and then he reappeared in... He did that Santa Claus movie on Netflix. He's been in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. You know, he's had a big career revival and it's nice to see and everybody loves it. You know, the younger generation are like, oh, I remember him when he was, you know, I remember hearing about him when he was younger. Now he's back. It's class. Yeah. And then the older generation think, oh, he was my childhood hero and now he's back at the top of his game. It's yeah. brilliant to see. But it is, you know, it's that slow death of anything in life, you know, that people don't like to see, mm. you know, and... It is that kind of fine line of knowing when to quit, when to stop, 
because you'll always be remembered as where you were when you finished i think you yeah. know and it's the same you know with uh you know like um what do you call him steve mcqueen will mm. always be seen as young you know this young sort of like hunk basically right yeah people like um harrison ford will not be seen as that by no. our generation you know people like um you know your likes of carrie fisher same as well you know carrie fisher will not be seen as princess leia to most of us yeah do you know what i mean um but obviously you don't want them to die but it's that principle of you know if you stop when you are at your peak mm. people will only ever remember you for yeah when you were at your peak but to get back to there was a specific song on your album actually and i've got the lyrics here because i'm awful at remembering things but it hit me at i the just time. have to i just have to sort of preface this with if there is anything on the musical side that i'm fully admitting that i'm shite at it's lyrics i'm awful at writing <laughs> lyrics well it wasn't a criticism so don't worry about that but um basically it was on bleed the same blood is the name of the song right, right? now before i listened to that song i maybe thought about where it was going i had an idea i could be wrong but kind of where i thought it was going and then you were like get your head from the mud because we bleed the same blood right now to me you enjoy obviously we were in the same politics class in yeah. school you know you live in northern ireland so like most people in northern ireland politics is a daily part of life oh yes that to me now i could be wrong correct me if i am wrong but that to me sounded like you know kind of the idea it was kind of like a analogy of you know 21st century you know 2021 northern ireland where people are kind of get your head out of your ass we're all yeah, the same exactly is that what that was yeah. about yeah no there's all sorts. i mean anytime you know i most, I'm glad I've kind of read mo- that right because mo- you know I'm awful at reading lyrics. Most so, of the know. time, I write lyrics. I'm not really that concerned about it. But there are odd songs where you know you know you hit a good vein and you sort of you touch on a number of different things. And there's a number of different things in that song. There's the sort of the mental health side. You know, there's supporting other people, and then there's also you know quit being arseholes. We're all, to each <laughs> other. We're all the same. Yeah. Ultimately, so, like I, you know, it was very poignant, especially when you released it because it was like maybe the day before. You released it, you can put, like, my album's like tomorrow, but that doesn't matter. What is important is, obviously, the violence in Belfast and stuff with young people and stuff. And, you know, it would be, like, obviously, you know, everybody sees violence in the streets. Nobody wants to see violence in the streets. How do you feel, you know, being kind of from this generation of, you know, we are Good Friday Agreement babies. We are, yeah. We're literally, like, I was 1998. I was 1998, yeah. as well. So, you know, we were literally born the year the Good Friday Agreement was signed. And I remember seeing a thing in 2018 when it was 20 years to the day from the good friday agreement and bbc news had done a thing around queens and were asking people you know what do you think of it and it was weird the response from a lot of people that said you know it did a good job but things aren't perfect and people were given this attitude it was kind of you know gustav stressman you know german economic minister was asked in the 30s about you know how he viewed the German economy and you know even though it was booming at this point and stuff or 1920 sorry just before the Great Depression and he said you know it's booming now but it's teetering on like it's basically dancing on a volcano yeah in the sense that this is amazing now but it's very very you know it could go either way it's like walking a tightrope and then that violence you know before that I thought to myself after the obviously the RSC thing you know with the border and stuff I kind of thought to myself you know things are going to kick off at some point and they did and no one likes to see it but do you think do you think they're a fair reflection of the attitudes of people in northern ireland or do you think it's just the kind of like reflections of a dying sort of breed of individuals who like to keep 
you know, old sort of fires burning. Do you I know what I mean? It's interesting, you know, people of our generation would make criticisms of the Good Friday Agreement and as you know, as I personally, I think justified those criticisms are, I think I would talk to my ma a lot about this. You know, she, you know, went, she, she's never lived anywhere else. Basically, she's always lived in Northern Ireland. You know, she, you know, my grandparent, my grandfather was a minister. So they always rent, went around different parts of Belfast. They spent time in Carrickfergus and Ligonil. I find that mad, by the way, before we go on, how ministers like move around churches and yeah. just get given I, that's mental like but go on sorry but i would I, I i i talked to her about it a lot because she um lived the whole way through you know basically all of it the bad the bad bad days and she'll always say the criticisms people have of the good friday agreement particularly from people of our generation will be because you know you know, for well i say for better for worse for better we don't remember what it was like before the good friday agreement when you know there were people but there were people disappearing people getting murdered bu- you know buildings getting blown up all those things so regardless of you know what we think about the situation now it is absolutely yeah. a- an improvement over what we had and what's mad is like say you know belfast as northern ireland you know I, we're good friday agreement kids we've never known the the real bad old days but even then northern ireland now is totally different to what it was when yeah. i was a kid it's yeah. mad like I remember in first year in school being on it. I think I was either on a train. I, I think I was either on a train or a bus or whatever. When there was like, like there was a bomb scare at York Gate, there were still sort of the odd bomb scares yeah. or whatever. Belfast now is totally different to how it was even when I was a kid, let alone to when my yeah. mom was a kid. So it's mad. Um, I think yeah, it's always going to be a generational thing. But I think saying putting it put, like say the trouble at the moment, putting it down to just sort of the last hurrah of the bitterness of you know a dying generation i think is a bit of an oversimplification yeah. can be a bit of a dangerous oversimplification because there's a lot of complex issues there but it certainly plays into it yeah yeah like i you know it was interesting you said about you know you're like talking about bomb scares and stuff i remember all the time you know when i was a kid my mom would have rang up the house and been like like let's say my granny was minding us when she was working and she'd be late home from work because there'd be a bomb scare and, you know, she was sitting in traffic yeah. because obviously it was being diverted and all. Yeah. And that was just normal. Yeah, But now 100%. that you say that, I haven't, you know... If that happened now, you know, like, kids who are younger than me, they'd be losing their yeah. minds. Do you know what worse to us? It was just like, oh, uh, you know... It's a thing, Because yeah. nine times out of ten, it never amounted to anything. Yeah. But it's just interesting that, you know, that did used to happen on the regular. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing I've noticed about Belfast, you know, changed even since we were a kid, is I always say, like, a lot of times, you know, I was in Belfast the other week and I said to my mates, I was like, it would be interesting exercise to go around the city and basically count how many buildings are here that weren't here when we were born. Yeah. And there are so many things that if you were actually to sit and think, you know, that exist in Belfast now that when we were born didn't exist. Victoria Square, the Victoria Square yeah. didn't exist. Yeah. You know, Victoria Square didn't exist. The Opal Tower, like the tallest building and the two tallest buildings in the entire island of ireland didn't yeah. exist the odyssey arena didn't exist didn't yeah. exist you know things like that you know ikea all like you know things that would like ikea would never have dreamed to have come to northern ireland 20 odd years no, ago yeah there's absolutely no chance you know your likes of tim hortons and tim hortons starbucks and stuff mm. you know tim hortons obviously uh, starbucks been here for years but tim hortons recently knew yeah um you know they're thinking of opening a wendy's you know in the uk and then obviously they'll probably open one over here they've got um what else have they got over here from america oh, i can't even remember there's something else have opened but greg's is another example yeah. there's greg's um you know these wouldn't have opened here 20 years ago because yeah. it's far too dangerous you know and it's things like that that we don't appreciate like victoria square was just because we were young enough it's just always been yeah. there we're just like we take it for granted and yeah. it's the same as you say with your mom and stuff you know 
same with my mum and all, you know, years ago, none of that happened. And I remember, like, you know, none of that was there for them to enjoy. Mm. So to them, it's like, wow, you know, where's the else? It's just, a yeah. Thing, yeah. And it's like, you know, my dad would always say, like, he told me a story once where he was in a pub and basically this guy came in and just set, like, a bag on the counter and went, right, lads, that's a bomb. You have 10 minutes to get out. And they were like, okay. And they just finished their drinks quickly and walked out. And that was just completely normal. Yeah. Why would anybody want to go back, you know, to that sort of period? And I think, you know, it's very hard for people because a lot of people don't care about Northern Ireland. Let's be honest. Um, and it's becoming abundantly obvious to a yeah, lot of people who thought um, otherwise. And, you know, it's the kind of issue where, like, they're kind of the, like, Northern Ireland's kind of the pariah of, like, probably politics, Western politics in general. Nobody really cares. Yeah. It's like the Yugoslavia of the 1980s. And, like, you yeah. know, all right, it's no one really cares. And we could very easily fall into a point where, you know, we do start fighting each other constantly and we do fall back into where we were and nobody would really give a shit. Yeah. So, like, I think it's very important, you know, I saw a few things in your, you know, your Instagram and stuff and your link tree to different organizations yeah. and stuff like North Belfast Interface. Um, the North Belfast Interface Network. Yeah. And there was... um. Was there something else you had shared? A link to I can't really rem- I can't fully remember. But to you, how important is it that you know people in Northern Ireland? Like, don't get me wrong, people can have different political opinions. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. But the key is, is that you know, in England or even Scotland, you know, there are people who are pro-independence and anti-independence, but they don't fight fight each other in the yeah. streets. Obviously, Northern Ireland has a long history of that, and it's very complex. And you know, it is a grey area. It's yeah. not like either just don't fight or do fight it's not black and white like that but how important is it to try and you know make people be like realize you know what you could have a different political opinion but that doesn't mean you have to want to fight people you know what i mean i don't even think it's a case of like say in the uk where it's like people have different political opinions and they don't fight i think it's a global thing you know yeah. a, a couple of years ago you know you know someone who supports the labor party could still be friends with someone who supports the tory party and, you know, you can have differences of opinions on, like, the deregulation of the stock exchange or whatever. But, you know, it was never a big deal. Whereas these days, you know, it's become fiercely tribal. You know, people saying, oh, I don't want any Tories on my newsfeed or anything. Like, I'll be honest, I'm friends with a couple of people who, you know, openly support the Conservative Party. They're not racists. They yeah. don't hate per people. But, you know, they have certain political opinions as opposed to social opinions. Yeah. I think saying that, you know, because someone supports that political party immediately makes them a bad person is just such a it's just such a dangerous it's a dangerous generalization. And I think politics in general across the world, not just in Northern Ireland, has become fiercely tribal. And I think people like say, you know, you go back to, you know, the terrible T word in America, Trump. I would think Donald Trump, I think Trump politically, you know, is very sort of misunderstood and people, and I think the separation politically between him and Joe Biden is not as great as people make it yeah, out to be. I would but agree. because he's such a controversial figure in terms of just not giving a shit about the repercussions of what he says, you know, it's just set the whole world against itself and i think northern ireland has be northern ireland will become a bit um of, will become a casualty yeah. of that but i think as i said down to that just being sort of british anti-british it's a lot more complex than that i yeah. think and i think it's the same you know with i think it's a big issue to me personally and it angers me when you know individuals try and get involved in things that they don't really know anything about yeah and you know there was a thing floating about instagram that didn't overly annoy me but it was a thing it was like uh this is what's happening in northern ireland right now 
and it was like people were sharing it on their stories and stuff which is fine you know it obviously it's a simplification but things like that on their own are okay mm. but they can be dangerous when people don't then contextualize yeah them. so like someone could read that and be like right protestants are, are unionists i don't like using the phrase protestant catholic because let's be honest nowadays it's just a national it's a national identity yeah. thing it's nothing to do with religion i don't care what anybody says yeah. it's really not but um so like people like unionists or nationalists it'll be like right unionists want this and then someone will come here and be like oh unionists you just want this so why fight about it just you know just go to politics and ask for it and you're like it's not as easy as yeah. that you know and it's things like that and people what really frustrates me is whenever you have world leaders like joe biden coming in and talking about that violence in northern ireland as much as the violence is wrong it's got nothing to do with him yeah do you know what i mean i think it gives it i think it adds weight and of credibility adds weight and cr- credibility having such a, a you know probably you know the world leader come in and throw his weight to it but you know again sort of coming in and sort of making very vague general statements about it isn't gonna help it's like you know the thing about um you know i always find with celebrities and stuff and people in general is they don't they like to want to see that they care without yeah. doing any research mm. to actually prove that they care at all yeah. and you know it's like um you know people will say things about oh northern ireland oh it's awful what's happening there thoughts and prayers or yeah you know there were bushfires in you know australia and people were sending off thoughts and prayers and then they were going out and driving their ferrari their yeah. six liter ferrari you know friggin' about 10 miles per gallon just no you know, self-awareness do you know what i mean that yeah. that there infuriates me yeah and you know i think it angers people a lot here especially like i think it can be you think people are out rioting and protesting right people are bored because of lockdown people are angry at different like it's a whole mirage of things that are causing the issue yeah and then when someone like joe biden turns around and goes oh violence isn't the answer to a young it's not as if they're going to go well okay that's it it's joe almost, biden no, says too so let's it's almost go home. just going to anger them even more yeah. because it's like what the fuck do you know it's yeah. got nothing to do with you you're sticking your nose in somewhere you don't belong and telling me what to do when yeah. you know nothing about the situation it's if i was in their situation it would probably anger me more yeah do you know what i mean and i think people don't realize and it's the thing with you know trump and biden and stuff american politics there is no left wing in american politics no. it's right wing or mildly center right yeah yeah it's either ridiculously right wing or mildly center right it's like um and the issue with that is is unless you got someone like bernie sanders who's a dirty communist apparently yeah yeah who's basically just like a labor party politician um and the thing you know the issue is is people like to jump on bandwagons of things and with donald trump like donald trump would write something on instagram right and say oh i don't know deport mexicans right which is obviously he shouldn't be writing that and to have that policy is an abhorrent policy but at the same time, people would be out ridiculing that, like, how dare he, fascist, Hitler, all this. And then Joe Biden goes, and I think he killed a couple of innocent people in a drone strike a couple of weeks back, and nobody batted an eyelid. Yeah, it's interesting because the most, you're like, one what? of the most controversial Trump policies was um, the detainment uh, centers on the America-Mexico border. Joe Biden hasn't actually done away with that. It's still going on, but people aren't complaining about it just because yeah. it's Joe Biden. And Guantanamo Bay is yeah. still. Do you know what I mean? I'm hoping that Guantanamo Bay will close in Biden's time. We hope since Obama. Yeah. So. But that's the same thing with Obama. You know, like another perfect example is I remember watching a documentary about Flint, Michigan, and about, you know, the water there being awful, and about basically what happened was some 
the senator of Michigan came in and was like, right, these investors have wanted to build like factories or whatever, and they yeah. div- diverted the river from um, Lake Michigan to this these factories, and it meant that the water that was then going to Flint was basically undrinkable. Yeah, and Obama came, and you know they complained and all, and you know whatever, and. Obama came, and the town is obviously largely, like, the population, I think, is mainly black, right? Yeah. And Obama came and, you know, stood in the podium and went, the water's clean, and went to, like, take a sip of the water and barely touched it. Yeah. And the thing with that is, a lot of people, a lot of individuals that lived in Flint were furious about that. And they were like, you know, he's meant to be on our side, he's meant to be defending us, and he's just came and pretended to drink the water. Mm. But it never made national news. No. Because it was Obama. If Trump had been like, oh, the water in Flint is fine, and had a came and blatantly... they erupting pro- about yeah, it. Yeah, it's the same. Like, you look at, um, you know, as much as I think, you know, he is a pompous schoolboy, like most of the Tories, Matt Hancock, when he pretended to cry, you know, about, was it about the vaccine targets yeah. or something? People ridiculed him for that. But then you look at that and you're like, well, you know what? You're ridiculing a guy for crying, but at the same time, or pretending to cry, but at the same time, that guy's went out and, you know, the UK is one of the best vaccination figures in the entire world. But if that was somebody standing there like Keir Stammer, who wasn't criticised or wasn't pretending to cry, but the figures were shitter, they'd be like, oh, it's... Yeah. They wouldn't say, you know, a lot of it's to do with, you know, people just have these perceptions that they're told to think. And it's like a subconscious thing where they're like... They view things differently based on who it is. And don't get me wrong, Trump, you know, I would never in a million years dream of voting for him. No. But he is not the modern day Adolf Hitler that people no, think he's not. he is. Absolutely not. You know what I mean? Nowhere close. And that's the big like that's the thing that I just don't like people and it's the same, you know, it's with a Good Friday Agreement and stuff. It's like people who weren't around back then form opinions based on all they know. Yeah. So Trump may have been the most right wing president, you know, whether he was or not is even up for discussion but he might have been the most right-wing president in our lifetime mm. so people instantly assume oh he must be as bad as hitler but you're like if you actually lived during world war ii and in, in nazi you'd Germany, have a very different opinion exactly do you know what i mean and i think that is key people these days are too quickly to form opinions based on all that they know and not the yeah. wider picture do you know what i mean yeah and in northern Ar- even you know even when to you know, there's one thing sort of people outside of Northern Ireland not being entirely well-versed on the ins and outs of the issues that are happening. There are people in Northern Ireland that still aren't entirely well-versed on the ins and outs of the issues. Like, say, um, at the moment, you know, it, there's a whole debate about, you know, the Irish sea border at Larne. Is it an issue of um, undermining people's Britishness? Ultimately, it's become an argument about that. But that's been... that's that That's as a result of just Pandora's box of shit <laughs> yeah. being opened... So, like, say, um, how it's st- basically how it started in Northern, you know, if there's anybody listening who isn't from Northern Ireland, or even if you're you are from Northern Ireland and you're not keeping up to date, right? Strap yourselves in. <laughs> basically, how it's been starting at the moment is it was an argument about the Irish Sea border, but a lot. Of, I mean, the reason it beca- it came to my immediate attention is because one of the first really bad nights when they were fire, I was one of the first really bad nights. I was at a friend of mine's house in Belfast. And I ended up having to stay at his house because I couldn't go home because they were firebombing cars around the corner <laughs> from my house. And that has all that um has been the young has been young people from loyalist estates, working class loyalist estates, being egged on by um and the reason and you know it's it's interesting, you know, these days, you know, back in the day, paramilitaries did what they did 
but because it's become less of um, paramilitary violence upon paramilitary violence, you know, nationalists and unionists, the um, the unionist um, paramilitaries have gone much more into drug carteling and become just sort of straight crime gangs. And the interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people are picking up on is the reason um, would have an issue immediately with the Irish Sea border is nothing to do with their Britishness, it's to do with their business. A lot of their drugs will have come from, the vast majority of their merchandise, shall we say, comes from down south. But they also have a lot of produce coming from across the water. So if you think about it, the last thing they want are tighter are tighter border controls and sniffer dogs, etc. at the port in Lorne where some of their merchandise is coming in. So what they have, well, so what you've got there, those are. I love the use of the phrase "produce." Yeah, <laughs> you know, those are you know pure. Well, whether they might also have sort of opinions on Britishness or whatever, those are business motivated yeah. issues that are being sold to the young people on their estate as it's an attack on your Britishness. And you know, obviously, as as I said, that was the opening of Pandora's box, and now it has become an argument about Britishness and anti-Britishness. And that's led to, you know, there was, um, you know, there was um, the bus on Lanark Way being firebombed when the driver was still on it. I like, know. It, like we, you know, when we said earlier on about, you know, you'd have bomb scares that never amounted to anything, you know, and that was just a thing. Even to me, that was shocking. Yeah. Like seeing that was shocking. And the day after I went and had a drive around Lanark Way and just had a look. And it was, it was shocking seeing the video footage from that night. I, I mean, again, you know, there you know, people of either even of our generation or the generation after us wouldn't appreciate the fact you know that night when they had to close the Lanark well, Way I'll Peace Barricade. I'll tell you how shocking that is. When it happened and it was on the news, I was sitting with my dad and my dad's fifty three, was born in nineteen sixty seven, you know, lived he was our age at the height of the troubles. Yeah. And he said to me, you know, one of his mates was is still is, but was a bus driver during the troubles. And what would happen is any time there was a riot or they wanted the bus to burn or whatever, they'd they would get have, everybody off they the They would bus. have literally turned around. They'd have came onto the bus and my dad's mate would have just been like, right, how long, boys, do I get my lunch? And then you can have the bus. Because yeah. it's not, he's not going to worry about the bus. But even back then, you know, they were like, right, okay, just get off the bus. We want the bus. We don't care about you. Yeah. And, you know, then like even now, like that's at the height of the troubles when people were literally cutting people up because they were a different religion yeah and then you've got you know a bus being burnt while the driver's still on it like but if you're burning a bus with someone still on it that's the point you know what i mean that like that is where it crosses over into you know that's not like even for us that's not you know for northern ireland which has seen so much violence even that you're like gee don't do that you know what i mean and i go back to the you know the lanark way peace barry people of our generation people who are younger than us won't appreciate just how big of a moment it was when they actually had to close the Lanark yeah. Way Peace Barrier. Like, that that's insane. The video footage of, you know, and sadly, you know, people from the nationalist side ended up getting dragged in as well. The footage of, you know, people logging petrol bombs from either side over the Lanark Way Peace Barrier. It was desperate. But even then, um, the, you know, the motivations behind that, you know, whether it's, you know, a case of just sort of, it, it's an attack on my British identity. The real issues behind that existed long before the rc border yeah. debate and they will exist and unless something's done they will exist long after the rc border debate you know the reason you know the reason any of these people are kicking up a fuss is because generally you know the quality of life they live you know the the standard of living 
um, standard of jobs, education, etc., in their areas are really, really, really poor. Like, say, back, you know, it was easier back in the Troubles when you had the big factories or you had Harland and Wolf, one of the big shipbuilding industries in the world. You know, there would, you know, there there would be jobs for people. Whereas these days, there's no shipbuilding in Belfast. You know, especially during COVID, a lot of jobs are being wiped out in these working class areas where people maybe aren't as well quality. You know, like, it's like these days we consider a standard job to be like a desk job working at a computer. And I'm pretty sure for most of those jobs, you'd need like a degree in computer science yeah. or some shit like that. And like, it's a bit like to, to contextualize it for, you know, if, if we're to sort of get into, get into the, the shoes of the people who are doing these things. I remember seeing an interview with um, a community worker from around the area. And she was saying that somebody was saying to her, oh, you know, we got to say to these young people, don't be doing this because, you know, you'll get it. And you know, as, as valid as it is, oh, don't do this. You'll get a criminal record. You'll not be able to go on holiday. You'll not be able to go to America. And this community worker said, let's just let's just remind everybody, a lot of these kids can't even afford their own bus fare. They're never going to America. Yeah. You know, and, I, you know, <laughs> it was a couple of years ago. I was in uni and we were having a discussion about riots and stuff in our politics class. And it was, you know, sometimes people say things in uni classes and you just laugh, but not because they're wrong, just because of how, like, you know, blunt it is. Yeah. And we were sitting in a politics class and we're talking about why people riot and all. And people were coming out with the basic statements of, you know, riots, a language of the unheard or whatever, Mm. which it is. But then someone literally stood up and said, some boy from... Don't know where he was from, but he had a really thick Northern Irish accent, you know, like proper. And he stood up and he just went, the re- he just turned around and goes, you don't see, he was like basically talked about something else. And then he went, at the end of the day, you don't see people ratting on the Malone Road. Absolutely. Yeah, and 100%. I, as soon as I heard, <laughs> as soon as I heard that, I just laughed. Like, you know, I tried not to laugh out loud. I just sniggered but to myself. But he's balls on, he's Because on. he was so right, you yeah. know. And it was because what made it so funny was... There's no bullshit No, that. Well, he was from, you know, he was from a work... You could tell he was from a working class background. And you could tell he was getting angry at all these people at the uni who, let's be honest, were from the likes of Malone Road were... Trying you know, to intellectualize it. Trying to be like, oh, well, maybe it's to do with this or that or... And, you know, he, he having lived the situation himself was like, you know what? People don't riot in the Malone Road, but they riot in poor areas. You know, it's as simple as that. And it is, you know, don't get me wrong... Other factors play a major role. You know, everything kind of gets put into a melting pot and eventually those issues rise to the top and they boil over the edge. But the RSC border, the funeral Bobby story, all that stuff is not the only reason why these people are out rioting. Those are the straws that break the camel's yeah. back. Like you think, you know, I saw a thing really fucked me off on Instagram. Some girl put up and shared, she was basically from her house and she showed an image of the smoke coming from the bus she took a photo of it and she goes absolute pricks or something why don't you just go get a gcse and get a job and i'm like I hate that what you That's... know what i mean how can you be so i don't even know what the word is like i know a lot of people because we went to enst you know we went to a very we were very lucky to go to a very good school of course yeah. i know quite a lot of people you know who would be from the malone road area and a lot of them don't realize quite you know, they'll say, oh, it's terrible. Oh, maybe, you know, they're they're on benefits, universal credit, blah, blah, blah. But they don't realize how bad it is. I remember um, I used to know, a, you know, in, in areas of North Belfast, West, West Belfast, some parts of East Belfast. I remember I knew a girl. Um, she lived in a one-bedroom flat with her ma. Her and her ma had to share a bed. The, the flat didn't have a flooring. 
And I remember one week, their food shop relied on 20 quid. It was on the back of 20 quid that her mom made from giving a fella a massage, a massage in inverted commas. It was it was horrifying. Yeah. It yeah. was really, it was it was horrifying. It was harrowing. People don't understand no. just how bad it is for some of these people. You know, and you go back to, you know, your woman saying, oh, why would you just get a GCSE? That's so tone deaf. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, that's the thing. Like, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm, and neither are you. Like, we're not from, you know, we're not Malone Road. Yeah. Posh. But at the same time, we're not, you know, like that. No, so we're, we're kind of, we're very lucky. Yeah. We're in the kind of, you know, middle ground of like, you know, we can, you know, I can't fully contact, like even me, you know, I can't fully contextualize, you know, what people at the very bottom struggle to mm. do. And I give the perfect example is, you know, people talk about, why don't you go get a job, go get an education, right? For people that can't really understand this concept, right? I'm going to Cardiff in September for a master's right. in broadcast journalism, right? I want to be a broadcast journalist. The only way I'm going to do that is by getting a specific bjtc qualification right which you can only either get through working as a journalist which is very difficult unless you have a degree mm. or through doing a degree program that awards that along with it right yeah. which is that broadcast journalism masters i'm going to do in cardiff i factored in total including fees accommodation and spending money i need about 24 grand a year or for the one year right yeah. to do that Student finance NI, the max they will give you is five and a half grand. Yeah. Right? So there's 19 and a half grand that I have to fund myself. Now, if you think minimum wage in this country is about, you know, if you're working 40 hours a week, it's probably in and around 20, probably not less. Yeah. You know, it's in and around, you know, you wouldn't be able to afford that if you saved up for a year. Yeah, 100%. You know, and when people are sitting there like on benefits, with four kids to feed they have no absolutely no chance like zero chance of being able to afford that yeah and if i didn't have you know the support that i have i would never be able to go to cardiff and do what i yeah. wanted to do and that's why it's so annoying you know it's that tone deaf nature of like oh you know just get a gcse it's the same way inst i give you for example with inst my granny and granda paid my inst fees because mm. my mom and dad it was the same aff- with my granda yeah. my granda did the same because my mom and dad couldn't afford them now if they weren't there i probably wouldn't have, you know i mean my mom i probably would have been able to make ends meet but we had to have made a lot of sacrifices mm. but you think if my granda is paying for you know our fees and my mom and dad both have good jobs if you're sitting like in and around the bread line you have no fucking chance absolutely no chance of going anywhere yeah and that's why it is so infuriating when people come out and say things like that yeah you know what i mean and i just i i just you don't even i don't even know how to respond to people like that you know what i mean because they're so you know it's like people that are on their high horse that yeah. just think oh my life's fine so why isn't yours i think tone deaf is 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 the word i would use because saying i'll oh, just go and get a gcse there's underneath very very deep in the mix there's a certain truth to that like say um in london when there was the whole knife crime thing and they had the stop and search policy they were like well if if we catch anybody with a knife we'll just take the knife off them that's a bit like you know finding someone who's suicidal and is going to shoot themselves taking the gun off them and thinking well that's the end of the problem that's not the end of the problem you just take in their means they'll just go and find other means and what was interesting was for many many you go up north to glasgow glasgow for many many years was voted the most violent city in europe 
So, you know, what did they, you know, did they go in and just take weapons off people if people found weapons, if they, if they find people with weapons? No, what they did was in certain areas, they invested heavily in welfare, in social services, in education, in general infrastructure, and generally tried to raise people's quality of living. And lo and behold, the level of crime came down. And you bring that back to Northern Ireland. One of my heroes, not just, you know, in education or in anything in particular, one of my heroes, like, period, was, do you know Sister Genevieve, the story of Sister Genevieve? I've heard the name. Sister Genevieve was um I can't I couldn't tell you the date stamps the years. Anyway, she was the, the she was she was the principal at St. Louis's Comprehensive in West Belfast during during a lot of the time uh the uh, during a lot of the really really bad years during the troubles and her and any anybody who was at school under her would tell you she was a really 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 fierce lady and that's because she realized that the way out for a lot of these kids was through education. So it wasn't as simple as like, say, you know, if we're, you know, it wasn't as simple as like, you know, say if her, if if there were girls bunking off or whatever to go and support her, their older brothers doing whatever, you know, it wasn't a case of like, oh, so and so's off, oh, that's okay. If she found out that so and so was off, she'd be sending people around to the family door, being like, why isn't your girl in school? If she's not sick, tell her to get into school. She forced these people to, well, not GCSE at the at the time they were O levels, not GCSE. She forced people get your get your O levels, and then even if you had your O levels, she would heavily encourage people go and do your A levels, get to university, get out of here. And that's why I say, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these, a lot of these committees in Queens of of uh, alumni at Queens, a lot of them are Catholic girls because, you know, it was that general environment of, you know, like bring it, bring, bring it full circle to what we're having at them, to what we're dealing with at the moment. And you look at the, I do, and I, you, you don't want to make it um, a nationalist unionist problem. But the facts are, if you look at what's happening at the moment in, the youth department there is a massive sides. level of underachievement in protestant communities yeah if you look no at, doubt about it if you look at what's happening in protestant communities at the moment what are the young people doing they're out rioting what are the young people in the catholic nationalist communities doing at the moment i saw in the news i think it was saint mary's college not the not the um the christian brothers school but saint mary's the university college were holding easter school for kids from the Catholic schools who want to, who just want to get two C's in maths and English GCSE, extra school for them so they can just get their two C's in maths and English GCSE. You know, it's it's a totally different, totally different mindset. I, I actually, I have looked at the figures for this. For I can't remember what it was for. I think it was maybe an essay in uni, because I'd heard, you know, for a while that you know this argument that unionists, unionist communities, loyalist schools, or whatever, greatly underachieve, mm. and. You know, when I was, I can't remember the exact figures now, but it's not that, you know, what, what you said there sounds as if it's just a generalization of all unionists get worse grades, but it is a fact. Yeah. Like it is an act. It is a fact of life. Like you look at the A-levels, the GCSE league tables, Catholic schools dominate those league tables. 100%. Yeah. You look at like, you know, in terms of grades and especially amongst like who you think who was out writing young unionist boys. Yeah. Right. Young unionist boys are the greatest underachievers in Northern Ireland of any socioeconomic group. Yeah. And again, that's not a that that it's, it's not it's, a criticism. It's not of them. and it's not no. a generalization no. either. You and know. it's not a criticism of them themselves. Of course not. It's, it's a not, criticism of the general infrastructure yeah, of the area. It's not their fault. That's the issue. Yeah, it's like sort of when I when you know when I was sort of going on about the violence at the moment. You know, I was saying, oh, stop! You know, young, stop your kids being radicalized by paramilitaries. That's that's not that's not. That's not 
that's not the end of the discussion. That's the beginning of the, the discussion. When you stop young people being radicalized by paramilitaries, that's the start of the discussion. It's like, all right, that's a good start. Now, you know, councillors, MLAs, whatever, let's have proper investment in, a bit like with Glasgow, in welfare, social services, education, so that people, you know, have a better, you know, standard of living, better quality of education, have a better chance of employability to get their, get themselves out of, you know, the situation they're in in the moment. And that's why I think it all comes around to, you know, when we were talking about the Britishness argument, and we'd go on about, you know, why is it, um, why is it a case of, uh, why are these people so concerned with their British identity? And that's because, you know, to put it bluntly, these people who don't live great, they don't live great lives, they don't have great jobs, don't have great education, but, you know, they enjoy reading things about the Queen. They'll have followed coverage about Prince Philip dying and all that. Their Britishness is, you know, it sounds awful to some people will be the only meaningful identity they have. So it'll be really important to them because everything else is really, really poor. They'll feel fiercely loyal to their Britishness. And I think, you know, I, I firmly believe that the British, the British anti-British rhetoric at the moment wouldn't be as fierce as it is if all these people were living better lives, if there was better community investment. At the end of the day, what people want is to be able to live a strong, successful, happy life. That's yeah. all people want. And, you know, it's the same, like, you look at the, you know, you look at the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, you know, people, most people were happy enough until they couldn't feed their kids. Yeah. They couldn't feed their families. And then that's what causes, you know, crisis and uproar. And that's what causes people to lose the head. You know mm. what I mean? And it brings, it does bring about that whole argument. They don't riot in the Malone Road. No, absolutely. And, you know, you don't see the same level of anger between, like, like you think, you think, we're, like, every interface area is working class. Mm. You don't have an interface area on in Castle Ray Hills. Or you don't have an interface area in the Malone Road. Or in Hollywood or somewhere, yeah. you know. Yeah, you don't go to Hollywood. Like, in Hollywood, it's a perfect example, though. In Hollywood, unionists and nationalists live side by side. Yeah. No issue. And that is because everything else in their life... Is fine. It's fine. The issue is, is... Now, don't get me wrong. They still can hold very, very strongly held beliefs yeah. on national identity. It's not saying that, like national identity is any less diluted but that's not the be all and end all yes. of their existence and i think that's a very fair point and i think as well you know they have nothing else to be angry about yeah you know whereas with young you know nationalists and unionists yes their national identity is an issue that angers them mm. you know when it's attacked or whatever but then add that on top of everything else that's going on in their life at that time yeah and they're just like you know what fuck this i've had enough yeah but people and politicians and everyone fail to see that. You know what I mean? And they fail to see that that's the issue. And, you know, you've councillors coming out and saying, oh, I'm, I, I like, um, some people, like, DUP councillors coming out and saying, you know, don't do what they did, you know, or don't do what we did. Don't riot. If you want to change things in terms of your identity and you want to protect your identity, go into politics, right? But it's but not as simple as that. Yeah, and the issue is, it's not even to do with that. The issue is, as well, it's not just politics, or it's not just identity that needs fixed. It's not just their identity that they need to defend. Whether, you know, it's their livelihoods, their, you know, everything to do with how they live their lives yeah. is what the issue is. And politicians and everybody feel to see that and mm. feel to notice. And, you know, it's the fact that, you know, for that DUP support deal with the Conservatives years ago, they were given a lump of money. And what the first thing they, needed, they were deciding to spend that money on was an M3, M2 overpass, yeah. right? Which was needed. Don't get me wrong. Of course it's needed. Yeah. But where's the funding for communities 
course. Absolutely, yeah. Where, you know, it's just, oh, let's build an, an overpass. You know, there's no funding into, you know, where's the funding into Mount Vernon? You know, mm. where's the funding into, you know, Woodvale? Where's the funding into, you know, Turf Lodge? There's none of that. Yeah. You know, it's just, well, here's the money, we'll build an overpass. And, you know, it kind of shows you, you know, how people you know few things yeah. how people you know and you know you could you could say well well the funding isn't that great there's not an awful lot of money rhi come on i know for fuck's sake <laughs> i agree um on that note um before we wrap this up do you have anything else you want to add on anything we've discussed you want a final word on anything i mean you we've know, discussed a lot we so. have uh, exactly <laughs> Uh, how long? How, how long have we been? Arn forty five. Arn forty five. Okay. <laughs> um. Uh. Have I beaten the record? Is this your longest podcast? It's close. Oh, very close. Is, is I there, think when it's over, it might be. Is there anything else we can quickly talk about? Um. What can we talk about? Uh. Let me see. Um, Rank your favorite Star Wars films. Okay. Uh, that's a good one, actually. Okay. So favorite Star Wars films. I am going to go. Um. Oh, in order. The spin-offs count as well, so Rogue One and Solo. They three, five, so three, five, Rogue One, four, eight, six, two, one, seven, nine. Okay. And I forgot Solo, but. Yeah, I can't remember anything about Solo. <laughs> yeah, it was alright. Yeah, exactly. It was it was inoffensive. Yeah. I don't remember it being really disastrous. No, 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 no. But um, I think I would probably go Jedi. So six, one. You go Jedi is your favorite. Yeah, I'd say Jedi. Fair enough. Actually, yeah. yeah, Jedi. Um, actually, no, Jedi, Empire, then Phantom Menace, then the Last Jedi, then Rogue One. Then Revenge of the Sith. Um. Then four. No. Yeah. Then four. Then Attack of the Clones. Then seven. Then um. What else is there? Nine. No. Oh yeah. Nine's at the bottom. Yeah. Nine is the only Star Wars film which I actively don't like. Yeah. You can't watch. Yeah. yeah. It's just. I'm actually trying to watch. That's the thing. I'm watching my Star Wars with my girlfriend at the minute, and we've got quickly through. We went one, two, three, Rogue One, four, five, six, and then it's kind of just slowed down yeah you know because i have no real motivation you know <clears throat> don't get me wrong we watched seven we've seen seven we're halfway through eight but i've no oh, real motive even do it in one setting and well we put it straight on after seven right, so okay. oh, right, um okay. and we you know it was like i had no motivation to watch the rest of yeah. it because it was only, not because i didn't like it but because it's only leading into nine yeah you know it's only leading into a disappointment yeah you know I, what I, I, mean? I look back at the sequel trilogy and i sort of as a, as a whole i think there are a lot of really good things to like about this. The Last Jedi, controversially, is probably one of my favorite Star Wars films. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, Adam Driver was fantastic. Great. Kylo Ren is a fantastic is a, character. Yeah, yeah, he's a really, really interesting character. There's a lot to like about that trilogy. But at the end of the day, did it really need to happen? No, no, it didn't. No. I think when Disney acquired Star Wars and they were going to be making more Star Wars content, I think they should have immediately started with someone, something like The Mandalorian yeah. and more Clone Wars and Rebels and all that stuff and more of the world building stuff. Because, you know, yeah, for, you know, Episode seven was nice, and the trilogy, yeah, it's nice that it happened, but the story was wrapped up pretty nicely <laughs> yeah. in Return of the Jedi. And I think the only, I think having, uh, it sort of made sense, be, it made sense in a way having Palpatine be the overall big bad if it weren't for the fact that he 
clearly, it was obviously, so clearly just wired just in, at, the end, in yeah. at the end. And I think we had this discussion before we went on microphone. The only way they could have really brought it all together and re- with that trilogy made it really all very rounded was confirm the theory that Darth Plagueis was Palpatine's yeah. master, that Darth Plagueis was the one who manipulated the Metaclorians to create, to impregnate Shmi Skywalker, and that he was Snoke. Yep. That was the only way they could have brought that all that, um, that all full circle, but they didn't, you know. I think it is a very, very, you know... Wasted opportunity. Yeah, my, my problem is, right, when I first saw them announced it was 2012 now 2012? that's a long time ago <laughs> when they 10 years yeah ago. when they first announced that and i saw that and they were going to make more films i instantly thought right old republic yeah right? go that back that would have been great i have been crying out for old republic films for so everybody's long everybody's been crying out and, for old republic you know, films it looks you know we're kind of going back now with the new books coming out you know the high, oh, the republic, high republic stuff even then the fu- who 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 fucking cares about that to be fair i've actually read the first book and it's not bad but i agree with you it's like 200 years back okay yeah. but we want way way back yeah. and they seem to be going back sith empire come yeah. on and that Acoly- acolyte tv show it's going to think it's taking place about three four hundred years before episode one yeah what what is acolyte about don't know i think it's about like um the sith a Sith apprentice working in the background, you know, right. kind of like the Plagueis book, where right. like you know, obviously because the Sith are like hidden in the shadows. Yeah. I think it's from what I've read. Is the general believe, idea that the whole Darth Plagueis, the whole Darth Plagueis being Palpatine's master, is that canon anymore? Is that I, no? It's well, it's canon that he's his master because they spoke it in Episode Three. But did he say in Episode yeah, Three he that goes he Darth, a- Well, he, I don't know actually because they know Darth Plagueis. So why? No, he didn't. You're right. They know obviously from the story Darth Plagueis existed. Yeah, but there's no mention of him being. Palpatine. Palpatine's master. You're and right. also, if they had gone along with the Colin Trevorrow version of Duel of, of um, Episode Nine, there was that bit where Ky- Kylo Ren would have been led to Palpatine's master, who was, I think, Tor Valum was the thing. It was going to be this sort of Lovecraftian yeah. creature. So I think if the, if they had gone that way, it would have sort of decanonized the idea that he was Palpatine's master. So yeah, but I don't know. I, it is a way. Seventy at nine were a wasted opportunity. They I were. think. The Mandalorian has saved the day. I think so, yeah. Massively. It is um, fantastic. The Mandalorian is incredible. Um, and I think the issue with Star Wars is, because there's so much going on, you need TV shows for world building because yeah. there is so much more you can do with a TV show. It's so much longer. It's so much more fleshed out. Yeah. And I think that's the issue with 7, 8, 9. They were trying to fit too much yeah. into, you know, the one thing. Whereas if 7, 8, 9 were TV shows, yeah, you know, like if, let's say it was a six season tv show and season one and two was episode seven three and four was episode six or episode eight and four and five or yeah. whatever or four and six five and six sorry were episode nine it would be a lot better yeah. because the shit would be fleshed out and i think that's what star wars needs yeah. to do is focus on TV put it this shows. way you know you take a, like an inoffensive character from the sequel like from the sequel trilogy you take um finn Finn's a good character. I like Finn, but it says a lot that I care less about Finn than I do about a character whose face we've seen for a grand total of like five minutes on screen in The Mandalorian. It's mad. Oh yeah, Jen like, hey, Yeah, obviously. Yeah, like, you do I, ca- I, ca- yeah, yeah, I yeah. care way more about him than I do about you know any of the characters Mate. in the sequel trilogy. And put it this way, there were a lot of great moments in the sequel trilogy. Seeing them in the cinema, there were a lot of moments where I was like, oh wow, but none of them. Seeing any of the uh, seeing any of episode seven, eight, or nine in the cinema, none of those moments seeing them in the cinema with the big screen will ever compare to me. Like literally getting on my feet, head in my hands at the end of Mandalorian C- series two, 
when the X-Wing comes yeah. in and all the shit that leads up to that. I was losing my fucking yeah. mind. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, the thing with the the Mandalorian is, it's like, but it is to do with that build-up, you know, because, yeah. you know, look coming in, you know, that fight and all, that was building up for eight, like, eight episodes. Yeah. It was built basically for two seasons, mm. you know what I mean? And the only issue with TV shows is they can have bigger builds up build-ups, but they yeah. don't have the awe-inspiring whatever because it's not yeah. on the big screen. That's but the only criticism. But what's good is I don't think they should be relying on moments like that. No. It's, I think because... You it's know, a great it, TV show anyway. Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah, I think it would have been great even if they didn't have the Luke Skywalker yeah, moment. But even if they had moments like that once every few seasons, you know, they because they're not happening as often, it feels a lot more earned. Yeah. And that's why it was... A, and, you know, I think, you know, in my opinion, you had a moment that was almost as good as that a few episodes earlier. The bit when, you know the charge comes down and suddenly Boba Fett and the armor drops down behind yeah, the stormtrooper yeah. and just kicks the shit out of everyone. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, I agree. Like, I couldn't criticize anything about the Mandalorian at all. And, uh, you know, it is just disappointing. You know, kind of when I think of Star Wars, I think of one to six. Seven yeah. and nine are kind of like an afterthought. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and I think, That's not saying they're terrible. No, but, but they're know. just, it's the same with like The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Lord of the Rings were incredible. The Hobbit didn't need just to didn't happen. Stack up. You know, it could have been or a rather, one. It, it would, it, it could, it, I think it not so much needed to happen, but it could, it, it would have worked. I mean, at the end of the day, I can't imagine how anybody within Peter Jackson's team thought that making three movies out of a each 200 of, page book, each of them with extended editions out of a book that was shorter than all of the Lord of the Ring book, out of all the Lord of the Rings books. I don't know how anybody thought that they could do that and get away with it. It was for money. Yeah. It had to be. There was no other, you know. They obviously looked at the appendices and all that shit. And they changed get... plan halfway through. I mean, originally, two. it was just going to be two. Fi- Even then, when they said it was going to be two films, I was like, but it's one book. I think because they, I think they rely too heavily on it being a prequel to Lord of the Rings, having let's, you know, let's shoehorn Legolas Lego, into yeah. it. And, you know, was, they relied so heavily on it being a prequel to Lord of the Rings. Whereas I think it would have been great if it was just an inoffensive film about a hobbit, a bunch of dwarves and a wizard going and beating a dragon. That would have been great. Yeah, yeah. And just had, it's almost like if it had a came first. Yeah. You know, and then they made Lord of the Rings. I completely agree with you. Like, um, but yeah, on that note, anything else? Um, No, that's that. You're definitely the longest podcast. Yes. So there we go. Um, Sam Morgan, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you uh, for asking Camino me. Royale as well. Um, if you want to see his music, um, I'm sure it's Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you want to find it, it's Camino Royale, K-A-M-I-N-O, then Space, obviously, and then I'm sure you all know how to spell Royale. Um, so if you want to check it out, you know, far away. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you for coming on, Sam. Great thank chat. you for asking me. It was a good chat. <laughs>